from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, I've got a very special friend. You all are very familiar with him if you've ever listened to this program. Corbin Ford, the uh, the man, the myth, the legend. Corbin, how you doing tonight, my friend? You know, man, I'm always happy to talk basketball with you. Always happy to talk with you, period. So I'm, I'm doing great. Came in, I'm sure we were a little tired, and then I see you, I'm like, let's go. So, you know, we're we're smack dab in the middle of sort of the dead season for, for the NBA in particular, right? And uh, so Corbin and I have been have been talking for a while and we actually like kind of started this a little bit last off season, but we didn't really get it going enough. We only recorded like I think one or two episodes on it. Um, but uh, we've been excited about this idea for a while and we actually want to follow through and, uh, and get through it all or get through a good chunk and, and finish it at some point. But the idea that uh, that's, that is going to be this episode is we're doing a best of the rest bracket and this is going to be kind of a march madness style uh 64 teams and the best of the rest you're wondering you know uh what does that mean essentially it's the best teams in nba history to never win a championship and uh the the basic way i came about like figuring out what teams belonged here was you know this isn't the most advanced or sophisticated of formulas but what I ended up going with was a combination of regular season wins, postseason wins, and a team's net rating. You add those three together, and you got a score, and the teams were ranked from 1 to 64 based on that sort of metric. And the only other sort of rule that I used to disqualify certain teams was, you know, for instance course Corbin a big Lakers fan the uh, the 2020 Los Angeles Lakers won the NBA championship so there's an element of I didn't want teams that you know had just recently won or won with that basic core of players to be involved here so if your team won a championship in a particular year the following three years and the previous three years you know to that championship season became ineligible so a good example, the, the 1999 San Antonio Spurs won the NBA championship. So the 2000 Spurs, the 2001 Spurs, the 2002 Spurs are ineligible. And then if you're talking about prior to that, you've got the 1998 Spurs, the 97 Spurs, and the 96 Spurs are ineligible. So every time your team wins a championship or a team wins a championship, the six years, three in front and three after, 
uh, become ineligible for participation in this. So that was kind of how I broke it down. And uh, Corbin has not heard the full list of teams yet. Uh, so, Corbin, you ready to you ready to hear this list? Let's bring it on. You already know I am. All right. So, uh, and also, Corbin, you know, feel free to chime in uh, if you've got any comments or any of these surprise you. Um, but uh, we'll we'll go through uh, each each seed. So the one seeds. The number one overall seed in this entire bracket is the 1997 Utah Jazz. Wow, that that Jazz team, in large part, has a great uh, has a great mark because they won 64 games that season. Also, came within two wins of uh, the NBA Finals, so won 13 postseason games as well, and then also had a really impressive net rating of positive 9.6. So again, you know, if you do well in all three of those categories, you're going to rank pretty highly in this bracket. So the 97 Jazz, the number one overall seed. Another, the second number one seed is the 2009 Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay, I like them. I, 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 I like them better than the 97 Jazz. That's interesting. So that was the most successful LeBron regular season team with Cleveland in all his in both stints. Uh, with a 66-win squad, uh, the the next team in the in the, uh, the number one overall seed portion is the 1996 Seattle SuperSonics. That's an underrated squad. Underrated squad. Happy to be able to talk about them coming up soon. And the final one seed, the 2018 Houston Rockets. Mm, actually, that's my dark horse right there. Yep, very solid, very mm-hmm. solid team with James Harden, Chris Paul. All right, moving on to the two seeds. We're starting with the 1993 Charles Barkley-led MVP season, Phoenix Suns. Okay, like that. And speaking of of legendary power forwards, the next team, the next two seed is the 2006 Dallas Mavericks, led by Dirk Nowitzki. Mm -hmm. Then we've got the 2009 Orlando Magic. With Dwight Howard. Okay, I like them. And the final two seed is the 2011 Chicago Bulls, led by MVP Derrick Rose. Nice. Nice. All right, moving on to the three seeds. This is one of my favorite teams of all time, and that is the 2002 Sacramento Kings. (sighs) That's a fun squad. (laughs) Absolutely. The next three seed is the 1994 New York Knicks. Oh, okay. Rough and tumble, but they're good. Then uh, the 2003 Dallas Mavericks with uh, Dirk Nowitzki and Steve Nash. That's a good team. And then uh, a more recent team, the 2021 Phoenix Suns. Hmm. Okay. Suns, of course, made the NBA Finals and came within two wins of, of the championship and falling eventually to the Milwaukee Bucks behind Giannis. Just a ridiculous performance. All right, now to the four seeds. We've got the Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, and James Harden trio, the 2012 Oklahoma City Thunder. That's okay, okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. That, that one year we had all three MVP, future MVPs together. 
That's right. And uh, the next team, you know, I talked about how um, if if a team wins a championship, the three years prior to that and the three years post that championship are ineligible. So this is the, the first year it's eligible prior to the 99 Spurs team winning it, and that's the 95 Spurs. So, of course, the, the 99 team had Tim Duncan as along with David Robinson, whereas the 95 group had, was led by David Robinson, no Tim Duncan, but it also had the likes of Sean Elliott and, and Dennis Rodman and Avery Johnson. Wow. The 1992 Portland Trailblazers with Clyde the Glide. Underrated squad. And then the final four seed, another Trailblazers team, the 2000 Trailblazers with uh, Scotty Pippen, Arvita Sabonis, Bonzi Wells. I know that's uh, one of your favorite uh, players. <laughs> love me some Bonzi. Uh, also, I love Blazers Pippen. That was that 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 team. That would have been a nice team to have won it all, but alas. Yeah, to me, that was one of the better teams that was able to be really successful and really dominant despite not having a superstar. You know, they were about as good as you could be with just a bunch of quality guys, but no one that's super elite. Of course, Scotty was still really darn good. But, uh, yeah, that uh, that team really came close to winning the championship. Of course, they, they ended up losing to the Los Angeles Lakers, and we've, uh, we've covered that series, the 2000 Western Conference Finals, on this oh, very sh- podcast. We sure did. A lot of fun. I miss those. <laughs> so uh, now to the five seeds. We've got the 1995 Orlando Magic with Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway. Okay. That's a fun one, too. Then we've got the 1997 Miami Heat led by Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning. Mm. Tim Hardaway, okay, that's that, the those nasty Heat teams that played the Knicks in all those rough-and-tumble conference finals. Exactly. And uh, also they ended up falling to the Chicago Bulls that season. The next team on the list also fell to the Chicago Bulls, led by Michael Jordan, and that is the 1998 Indiana Pacers. Fun team. We also, like you said, we also did a really good deep dive on them. Absolutely. And the final five seed is the 2007 Phoenix Suns, led by Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire, the seven second or less Suns that uh, ended up falling to the Spurs in that controversial series where Steve Nash was hip checked into the scorers table and uh, it led to some benches, uh, some of the players on the benches clearing. And coming out onto the floor, which uh, led to Amari Stoudemire and Boris Diaw being suspended for a crucial Game 5 of that series. Yeah, I I really still believe that 2007 team should have won it all. All right, now the six seeds. We've got the another recent team. I know, Corbin, you're not too, uh, too high on this team, but that's the 2021 Utah Jazz. Basically the height of the Mitchell Gobert era there. In Utah. You would be correct. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, The next team up is the 2004 Minnesota Timberwolves, led by NBA, NBA MVP that season, Kevin Garnett, the big ticket. Yeah, that was one of his, one of, if not his best season. And don't forget, you had some really good season from some old geezers in uh, Sam Cassell and Latrell Sprewell. Absolutely. 
Next up is the, you know, another team like that 2000 Blazers squad that did extremely well without that superstar type player. And that's the 2015 Atlanta Hawks. Mm, team basketball. Yeah. Remember them? Yeah, they had so much hype. I Listen, I had thoughts on them. And then when the Cavs came and did what they did, I was like, yeah, but they had a heck of a run. What a season for them. Absolutely. Uh, won, won 60 games in the regular season. And the final six seed is the 2016 Oklahoma City Thunder. Okay, the last year of, of Russ and, and KD. Yep, and again, came oh so close to uh, to making the NBA Finals. Was up three. Mm-hmm. They were up 3-1 on the uh, on the Golden State Warriors who ended up coming back and, and winning uh, in what what is one of my favorite NBA playoff series of all time. Yeah, that was a tough back and forth fun one. All right, now to the seven seeds. We've got the uh, a team that I know Corbin loves in part because uh, you know you've got an inefficient shot creator at its center and that is the 2001 Philadelphia 76ers. Oh, the model. Listen, that's how that's heliocentric basketball at its finest there, okay? Yeah, with Dikembe Mutombo as the number two option offensively. Hey, he oh, was, yeah, uh, yeah. We joke. We joke. <laughs> yeah. uh, next up is, uh, you know, there's actually going to be a couple of these uh, Bucks teams from the 1980s. Uh, they had some great runs, you know, led by Don Nelson and had uh, they had quite a few really interesting players on those teams. But uh, the 1986 Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah. Fun, gritty group. I think you had, what, Paul Pressey. Then you had Sidney Moncrief. Um, you had a, a good roster. I don't know if – I think he retired. I think it was Bob, I think Bob Lanier retired in 85. But, yeah, Craig Hodges, Terry Cummings. Yeah, like you had you had a good squad. Ricky Pierce, don't forget him. Good little group. Absolutely. Lanier had retired. There you go. I had to say it. Next up is uh, one of the more recent teams on this list, and that's the 2022 Boston Celtics that ended up falling to the Golden State Warriors in the NBA Finals. That's a good squad. It'll be interesting to see kind of where they rank and how we can talk about them. But, I mean, they had they had some good strengths, and we also saw they had some pretty significant weaknesses. Now we've got uh, the final seven seed is the 1993 Seattle Supersonics. So again, a, a, a similar team led by Gary Payton and Sean Kemp, but a little bit younger versions of them. And they had some veterans in tow on uh, on that team, including a guy in uh, in Sam Perkins. Yeah, Nate McMillan. Yeah, you had some. You had some Eddie Johnson. You had some old guys who was a nice mix, but like you said, a, a younger iteration of that Supersonic team that would make the finals three years later. Now to the eight seeds, we've got the 1992 Cleveland Cavaliers, led by Mark Price and Brad Doherty. Well, that was kind of the, the height of their run. I'd say getting toward the twilight of their run, they would still compete. But you're right, though; those were the teams: Hot Rod Williams. You know, um, yeah, they had they had some they had some some good some good folks. Next up is the 2021 Los Angeles Clippers, a team that ended up falling in the Western Conference Finals to the Phoenix Suns, but uh, that was after Kawhi Leonard ended up uh, ended up tearing his ACL and being out uh, in that he he went out in that series against Utah, but they were able to beat 
that 2021 Utah Jazz team, which is also in this bracket. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people suggest that if Kawhi hadn't gone down, you know, the Clippers might have gone all the way that season. I would argue that, too. You could argue the Clippers in a couple of years in that range between 2020 and now. But unfortunately, injuries do exist. Next up is the 2014 Los Angeles Clippers. All right. This was Lob City. Chris yeah. Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan. I think I Karan Butler, uh, Matt Barnes, if I remember correctly. Looking at them now just to make sure I'm getting it right. But you had a, a pretty decent squad there. Um, but they won 57 games there. First in the Pacific. Yeah. Jamal Crawford, Darren Hollison, Steven Jackson. They had all the old vets. Hidu Turkaloo. They had like three or four guys that were like at the very end of their career there. Antoine Jameson, remember him? Yeah, I think like as far as those, you know, those Lob City groups, that was the team that had the 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 best bench because I think that was their biggest weakness throughout the that sort of whole era. And uh, with Darren Collison there, they um, they had and some of those other guys you mentioned, they had some they had some good uh, they had some firepower on the bench, and they ended up losing to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And there was that game five where. They just completely choked away that game and what would have been a 3-2 series lead uh, and ultimately ended up losing that series. But uh, that might have been their best shot and that the best team in that era. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Next up is the 1981 Milwaukee Bucks. Okay, now this one did have Bob Lanier on the squad. I think you also had um, Marcus Johnson. Still there as well. I'm trying to think of other guys on on this roster team because you're Don Nelson coaching, Junior Bridgman, yeah, Sidney Moncrief again. Uh, this was probably rookie year, Sidney Moncrief. Brian Winters, who was a good shooter for his time. Yeah, I mean, they had some guys. They had some guys. Don't expect them to go far in this tournament, but they had some guys. <laughs> well, yeah, they are. Uh... They are an eight seed, so yeah, most yeah, eight seeds yeah. uh, don't advance that far. They're like, but... There's no Weebly Warriors of, of them. Yeah. All right. So now we're up to the the nine seeds now. And uh, next up is the 2018 Boston Celtics. Okay. This was the Kyrie Irving and the young guys squad. Exactly. And you still had, uh, you know, a younger Al Horford there. Yeah. Terry Rozier. Um, You did. Yeah. Because Hayward and Irving were injured in the postseason. Yeah. So uh, we should also here. mention that in Mark for this for this tournament for the purposes of this tournament these teams are healthy. Okay. Yeah. Important distinction. You're right. Next. Next up is the 2010 Phoenix Suns. The last gasp of the Nash era. They kind of lucked themselves in, but you had Nash, you had Stoudemire. That pick and roll attack was good. You also had Jason Richardson, Channing Fry, Goran Dragic off the bench. Jerry Dudley was solid. Had a good little group. Grant Hill, and, you know, he had finally figured out how to oh. be healthy right towards the end of his career there. Yeah, reinvented himself as a grizzled defensive stopper a little bit. Gave Kobe some issues. Yeah. So uh, next up we have the 2008 New Orleans Hornets. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what? Chris Paul, Tyson Chandler, David West. You exactly. know, you got some good vets around there. I wonder, was Bonzi and Wells on that squad? I don't think so. But now I got to check it out. You had some you had some good vets surrounding 
the trifecta of, you know, uh, Paul, West, and Chandler. No, yeah, Bonzi Wells was on that team, so. Good recall there, yeah. Thank Um, you, Rasul Butler, Birdman, Mike James, Peja was there. Morris Peterson. Mo Mo Pete, yeah, Bobby Jackson. Yeah, it's a a fun little team. I, I call them the indie team, you know. Yeah, team won that team won fifty six games and and really challenged the Spurs in the second round. That went seven seven games, mm-hmm. and then and the defending champion Spurs at that time. Yeah, the final number nine seed is the two thousand and three New Jersey Nets, led by Jason Kidd. I mean, you had Jason Kidd, you had um, Kenyon Martin, you know, but also you had other guys as well that chipped in. I mean, this was a uh, team that Kerry Kittles, Dikembe, who had bounced around a few Easter Conference teams in quick succession. I think it was Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York. He was just bouncing around. Um, but Rich Jefferson, you know, young Rich Jefferson, Lucius Harris was there. You had a good squad. I mean, they weren't pretty to watch, Rodney Rogers, but they were effective. Yeah, and those teams were – I don't think people – think about this as much with those groups because they were known as kind of the running style, right? And you're just like, uh, you know, you've got the Jason Kidd passing highlight reel, but those teams really won with their defense. They were right at the top of the league on the defensive end, and and really they were a, a pretty poor half-court offense, but the, the transition game, uh, you know, gave them enough juice that their defense could end up winning games for them. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of rough and tumble series with the Celtics, the Pacers, the gamut of 79 to 86 games, or 79 to 73. Yeah. Now to the 10 seeds, we've got another recent team, the 2022 Miami Heat. Okay. Jimmy, Tyler Hero, you know, Bam, of course. I don't know why I mentioned Tyler Hero before Bam. (laughs) Jimmy, Bam, Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson was still good. Um, PJ yeah, Tucker was, was on that team. Tucker was there. You also had Andre Godala, if I remember. Yeah, so you had some good. Uh, what's Andre yet? Or uh, no, yeah, Andre I think was, he was not. in the twenty twenty. Andre was in the twenty twenty team. Yeah, so no, you had you had, you had some decent players on it. The nineteen eighty seven Atlanta Hawks, led by Dominique Wilkins, Doc Rivers, Spud Webb, Moses Malone. Good little group. I mean, their flaws were, were pretty clear, but they were a fun squad for sure. Um, also, fun tip, if you play NBA 2K, which, you know, kind of, you know, we have thoughts on that. But if you do, Atlanta Hawks is not a bad team to run. If you're trying to do a running gun style with a post-up center in Malone who can kind of switch it up a little bit and give you a change of pace. So, yeah, um, definitely would recommend them. Uh, actually, just kidding, because I got the years wrong. Uh, Malone didn't come to 88, so no. But you, uh, you know, if you want to post up with Anton Carr and, uh, you know, Tree Rollins, be my guest. <laughs> Good old Tree Rollins. You gotta love Tree. The uh, the next team up is the 2009 Denver Nuggets. Oh, this was a fun squad. Obviously, Carmelo Anthony kind of leading the charge, but let's not forget you got a really, really good. Uh, Chauncey Billups here because this is the year that Chauncey Billups was swapped for Allen Iverson, I think like three games in or something like that, real early in the season. Um, Nene, Kenyon Martin, your front line, um, off the bench, J.R. Smith, Anthony Carter, Chucky Atkins is still pumping up threes. You had defensive guys in Chris Anderson and Dante Jones. Remember Linus Klaza? He was around. 
Yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty good, pretty good team. And and what they got all the way to the Western Conference Finals. That's right. For for anyone listening, if you play hoop grids out there, you know, just listen to the names Corbin's rattling off here, and you'll get pretty good at that game. There you go. Yeah. They got to be uh, better with some of these. <laughs> the uh, next, the final ten seed is the twenty twenty two Memphis Grizzlies, led by Ja Morant. Yeah. Um. They're in there. I, I mean, <laughs> I wish I had more to say. They were a good regular season team. I didn't really have a whole lot of faith in the postseason, um, like at the moment. And I mean, yeah, John Moran, Desmond Bain, Dylan Brooks, Jaron Jackson, Melton was there, Tyce Jones, like they're a solid team. Kyle um, Anderson. Yep, can't forget Kyle Anderson. I mean, I did, but you can't. Um, yeah, I, they're okay. I really don't have a lot of thoughts on them. Sorry, I can't even say they're a memorable team. They, they were there. But yeah, I mean you can make an argument that they gave the Warriors, the NBA champions, the toughest playoff series. I mean, that was a really competitive, uh, a competitive series. And, you know, John Moran ended up going down late in that series, but they still ended up winning a game by close to 50 points as well in that series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, they got licks in for sure. You're right. You're right. Maybe I'm underestimating that. And they have, you know, I, I think that team had, especially compared to, you know, after losing Melton and Anderson, they had a versatility, especially on the defensive end, to match up with just about anybody. They were definitely flexible, and you're right. All right, moving on to the 11 seeds, we've got the 1988 Dallas Mavericks. One of my favorite squads to play with when I'm thinking of retro teams. I mean, you had my guy, one of my favorites, Mark Aguirre, who I feel – with his offensive skill set, was a little bit ahead of his time in the small forward because he could do uh, the play the post-up game. He could shoot from the mid-range. He could create his own shot. He could knock it down from three. I mean, he wasn't the most efficient three-point shooter, but it was definitely a part of his game. But you had Derek Harper, who had a really strong season. Um, he had increased his scoring average, I think, over his first eight seasons, and this was another one of those. Don't forget Rolando Blackman coming off of screens in the mid-range. You had a good front line with Sam Perkins and James Donaldson. Um, and off the bench, you had guys like Roy Tarpley, who was a, a talented young forward, um, just derailed with some personal issues. Brad Davis was a really solid backup point guard for most of the 80s and was able to shoot the ball well. And then young Devlin Shrimp, who was basically 6'10", you know, forward who could shoot a little bit, pass a little bit, rebound a little bit, kind of do it all. So that was a fun little team that lost the Lakers in seven games in the West Conference Finals. Absolutely. Yeah. And that Lakers team was, was, was excellent. Um, yes, they were next up. We've got the 2008 Utah jazz led by Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer. Yeah, we sure do. <laughs> we sure do. One of the last great Jerry Sloan coach teams, um, Gordon Girachek, uh, Matt Harpering. Uh, don't forget AK 47, Andre Karolinko. Mameo Kaur, Young Millsap. I mean, they, they, they were a, a solid team. Um, they were a solid team. They I, I they weren't – it's weird because they – this was the year after the, they beat the We Believe Warriors and they lost in six to the Lakers. They were, they were good. They were really um, – they were number one offensive rating that season, which is surprising in my mind. Um, in the middle of the pack defensively, they, they were a solid squad. I wish I remember more about them, but I don't. Next up, Corbin is a team that I think has a chance to make a Cinderella run. We're talking 11, we're in the 11 seed category now. So um, I, I, I genuinely think this team has a pretty good shot. And the reason is they're, 
their overall score and the reason they're ranked so low is because they only ended up having two postseason wins. And that's because they lost one of the most heartbreaking playoff series in NBA history. And that's the 1989 Cleveland Cavaliers. Oh, I mean, I thought we were going to say the 2007 Golden State Warriors, but I mean, yeah, you know, the 1989, they they did lose in a heartbreaking fashion. They were a good team. And this is before injuries kind of came in and ended, uh, I wouldn't even say potential dynasty, but like potential perennial contention really before it starts. You had a prime Mark Price, and that's saying a lot given how fast he was before his knee injuries. Brad Doherty, like you said, um, Ron Harper as well. That's the difference, Corbin. That's the difference between this 89 Cavs team and the 92 Cavs, who actually made it further in the playoffs and and are actually ranked higher. But mm-hmm. just purely on paper with talent, you know, it's very, they're very similar teams, except, you know, you just add Ron Harper to the 89 group. And Ron Harper was a heck of a player at this time. This was before a lot of his injuries that sort of sapped a lot of his athleticism that Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Harper was still a good player in the mid to late nineties, but he was an excellent, excellent two-way guy slasher defender in those late eighties years. Yeah, most definitely. And and Larry Nance was, was still in his prime, um, just 29. He was fourth in scoring on this Cleveland team with 17 points per game. They're pretty, I mean, they're pretty balanced in their, in their scoring hierarchy. Mark Price and Brad Doherty tied in leading in scoring with Ron Harper literally right behind them. Yeah. Really solid. Craig Elo came, played some good defense, could knock down the outside shot. Um, Mike Sanders, kind of a utility forward. Um, yeah, they had a good a good team. And, and let's not forget, Tree Rollins makes another appearance. And Tree John Rollins Hot Rod there. Williams. Did we mention Hot Rod? He was a heck we, of a backup we did. we did, yep. All right. Now, uh, the final 11 seed is the 1986 Houston Rockets, a team led by a couple of young bigs in Hakeem Olajuwon, and Ralph Sampson that made it all the way to the NBA Finals, ended up losing to what some consider the greatest team of all time in that 86 Celtics squad. Yeah, speak for yourself, get non-playing. Exactly. No, they did. They did. That's how the squad was deep. And that, that Houston team was no pushover. I mean, they handled the Lakers pretty uh, definitively in their Western Conference matchup. And you did have, of course, the Twin Towers between Akeem Elijah and Ralph Sampson. But you also had some really good guards. John Lucas um gave one of his final like great seasons in terms of you know initiating the offense being able to knock down the J. Rodney McCray was a really rangy forward play good defense could make himself useful in the offensive end you had Lewis Lloyd and Mitchell Wiggins um, um Andrew Wiggins father um both of those two were decent shots from the mid-range and could get hot in a hurry Robert Reed was one of those again do it all kind of forward types pass a little shoot a little you know rebound a bit um, they had a very kind of versatile lineup, considering that they were built around two bigs, and they worked really well together, and 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 their success proved that. Robert Reed was really darn good. I don't think a lot of people know about him, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that that guy could ball. Yes, um, he could. All right, now moving on to the twelve seeds, we've got the two thousand and one Milwaukee Bucks, a team that ended up losing to that 2001 Sixers team led by AI, but that Bucks group had the likes of a young Ray Allen, it had Sam Cassell, and it had uh, Glenn Big Dog Robinson. Mm-hmm. Sure did. Also one of my favorites, Tim Thomas. Yeah, so young Tim yeah. Thomas. Young Tim Thomas. You had uh, Irvin Johnson, not to be confused with Magic. 
Um, Lindsey Hunter, you know, the vet off the bench. You had some really good guys. You had Jerome Kersey still there. Didn't get a whole lot of run um, in, in the playoffs at all. But in the regular season, we didn't get any run in the playoffs. But in the regular season, he was part of that team too. Young Rafer Olsen and Michael Red were also on that roster. I mean, those guys really didn't factor in until much later in their respective careers. But, like, those those folks were solid. You're right. They gave the 76ers a run for their money. A team that surprised me that they got this high up, even even though we're, we're in the, the 12 seeds. But uh, uh, the 2019 Portland Trailblazers make this list, Corbin. Yeah, that's surprising to me too, Gary. They, uh, I think in part, they made a conference finals. So they did win eight postseason games, had a, you know, at least a decent point differential. So they get in there as the, uh, uh, as a 12 seed up next, we've got, uh, the, the last two 12 seeds are both from the 2012, 13 NBA season. The first one is the 2013 New York Knicks. Okay. I like that team. That was actually the team that I, I it was so funny. You had, of course. Carmelo Anthony to a much lesser extent of Mario Stoudemire, but you also had all these old vets, you know, well, before that, you, you still had J.R. Smith as well. Um, and I think you had Amon Shumpert as well. Um, so those would be your younger guys. But after that, like really kind of supporting that team was guys like, you know, 38 year old Jason Kidd, you know, 35 year old or 39 year old Jason Kidd, 35 year old Kenyon Martin. Pablo Prigioni got big minutes. He was 35. Rasheed Wallace was 38. Before he got injured, he made some, some impact on this Knicks team. Like they had some older guys as well on the squad. Um, and let's not forget defense player of the year, Tyson Chandler. Absolutely. Yeah, that team was uh, that team was definitely really fun to watch. And uh, Prigioni was certainly was certainly a pest, uh, especially getting those steals and, and pressuring in the backcourt. The, uh, the other team from that same uh, season, the 2012-13 NBA season, is the 2013 Indiana Pacers. Okay, good squad as well. That was the team that ultimately took down the Knicks um, and gave the Heat a run, a run for their money. You had, of course, I wouldn't say prime Paul George, but a Paul George that was coming into his own, and you still had other guys around him like David West. Um, let's not forget Roy Hibbert as well. Um Danny Granger, you know, George Hill, Tyler Hansbrough, um, a buddy of ours at Fortune to meet Orlando Johnson off the bench, but let's not also forget Lance Stevenson. Really good, solid squad. A good mix of rugged defensive guys and offensive first guys. And, of course, Frank Vogel kind of pulling the strings on that end. Um, got the most this, – this, this, this Pacers team put their hard hat on and got to work. All right, moving on to the 13 seeds, we've got the 2015 Memphis Grizzlies. Grand grind, baby. This was like one of the prime Memphis Grizzlies teams in that Mike Conley, Marc Gasol era. You know, Tony Allen, Zach Randolph. You know, you 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 had a, a solid team. They, again, weren't pretty on the offensive end, but defensively they, they made it happen. Um, Courtney Lee, Jeff Green, Vince Carter. You know, solid, solid folks. I remember Quincy Pondex. I was writing about the Grizzlies back then. So um, I remember a few of these guys in there. And yeah, it wasn't pretty basketball, but it was it was grit and grind. It was heart and soul. And they left it all out there. And that team was up 2-1 on the te- on the Golden State Warriors, the team that ended up winning the championship that season. Mm-hmm. Next up on the 13 seeds is the 2009 Houston Rockets. Okay, uh, this team is an interesting one. I remember this being more. This was the last year. I think this was the year that the last year that Tracy McGrady was there. I don't know if he factored in 
super well that season, um, if I'm remembering correctly. But I know you had a bunch of guys there. You had uh, Metal World Peace, um, Yao Ming, of course, who I think was one of his healthiest seasons and, like, his next to last season NBA. Don't forget. But he did get he, Ming Yao did get hurt in the in the playoffs though. Yeah, and then 2010 was it for him exactly. Yeah, but Luis Scola, Aaron Brooks had a, a signature game, lighting up Derek Fisher in the playoffs. Shane Battier, of course. Uh, again, this was a team that reminded me of the grit and grind Grizzlies. It wasn't necessarily pretty, but they found a way to make it work. Um, and it was a mostly defensive identity, and kind of going from there, and they did just that, overachieved for sure. All right, the next team is the 2013 Denver Nuggets. Okay, another team. That was kind of a mix of things. You know, Andre Miller, Danilo Gallinari, Wilson Chandler, um, just a nice uh, Andre Godala. You know, like this was a team that just kind of – and they they had they, – I remember them stealing game one, or not really stealing game one, but taking game one against the Warriors in that, in that postseason off of Andre Miller game winner on Draymond Green. That left to right crossover reverse layup, it was crazy. And mind you, Andre Miller's 36. This was no young spring chicken. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, Ty Lawson, again, one of his last good seasons. Um, Corey Brew was in there mixing up Costa Kufis, JaVale McGee, like Ken Free, the manimal, before he got played out the league. Like he was solid that year. This was a good squad. Yeah, and another team that I think, again, didn't have a superstar player. You know, Andre Iguodala was an all-star caliber guy, yeah. but um, they they did it just based on the uh, quality of depth. And unfortunately, that team had uh, was missing Danilo Gallinari in that playoff series. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, losing, again, you know, for the best of teams, you know, losing a key starter is going to hurt you, but you know, when you are less reliant on superstars and you're more kind of a team that has balanced scoring, losing a guy like Gallo just hurts all the more. Yeah, it'd be catastrophic as it was. The final 13 seed is the 1977 Philadelphia 76ers with Dr. J. George McGinnis, Bobby Jones. I think of other guys on that team. Doug um, Collins. Doug Collins, yep. Henry yep. Bibby, Mike Bibby's father. Mike Bibby's father, and a, and a decent shot as a, as a guard, too. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't expect them to go far in this, but, you know, uh, they're going to be there. We'll be free. Call one of the best NBA names. Daryl Dawkins from, you know, the late Daryl Dawkins from the planet Lovetron. You know, like, you had some fun personalities on this team, some fun names for sure. Um, Caldwell Jones, he played like 20 years in the league, not really, but very, very close. And this is one of his stops. Steve Mix was in the mix. <laughs> yeah, you had a, it, was, it was an interesting team. Again, uh, I don't expect to go very far. Obviously, they are like the 13th seed, but a fun team. And I'm, I'm glad we got some uh, 76ers, you know, from the late 70s to represent the 80s. All right. Now we're to the 14 seeds, and we're also to a team that is the the oldest in, in the history of the NBA, the oldest group that uh, that made this list, and that's the 1962 Los Angeles Lakers. And, Corbin, it was really difficult based on that rule I mentioned earlier of, you know, if a team wins a championship, the three years prior and the three years, you know, post-championship were ineligible. That basically made it hard to find any Lakers teams throughout history because they so consistently have won. Um but uh, the 62 squad 
qualifies, and this is a team with a young Jerry West as well as a in his prime Elgin Baylor. Yeah, Frank Salvi was a decent guard from what I've read. Um, Rudy LaRusso apparently was a, a good defender with a mid-range jumper as well. Um, Jim Krabs, who tragically after this season died in a pretty bad tree-cutting accident, but he was a center who held his own. I mean, he wasn't very good defensively, but like offensively had a little thing he could do. Um, yeah, like this team, I, literally all I know from this is like three or four YouTube videos and a bunch of reading about them in the past. Um, and you're right. I mean, I'm glad you were at least able to get a Laker team in here, Garrett. I, I respect that. But um, yeah, they went as far as Elgin Baylor and Jerry West took them and, and got pretty far. Elgin Baylor in his prime uh, taking uh, 33 shots a game. Averaged 38.3 points. Efficiency wasn't super great, but still. And then Jerry West, um, 30 points per game along with seven rebounds and five assists. By the way, Elgin Baylor, numbers, regular season, 38.3 points, 18.6 rebounds, 4.6 assists. Insane. For yeah. a player, yes, you know, this is the 1960s, but a 6-5 forward. Yeah, now these games were played at a frantic pace, lots of possessions, which is why you get some of those slightly inflated rebounding numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, the next 14 seed is the 1990 Philadelphia 76ers, a team led by a young Charles Barkley. Yeah, young prime Charles Barkley probably should have won the MVP that year, if we're being honest. Um, and I don't mind because I think it was um, ultimately Magic Johnson who won it. But Charles Barkley that year put up monster numbers for a Philadelphia team that definitely outpunched its weight. Um, you had, of course... Charles Barkley, you had, uh, and, and mind you, looking at Charles Barkley's numbers, I was going to read them real quick. 25.2 points per game, 11.5 rebounds, and 3.9 assists. Um, as the offensive hub for this team, a 6-6 power forward who looked a little smaller. You had Johnny Dawkins as well. Um, one of his good seasons before injuries really hit him. He was in his prime. Uh, Hersey Hawkins was a rookie, but definitely came in and made an immediate impact on that team. Mike Jeminski is solid, big. Just played well. Knocked on the mid-range Jay, finished around the basket. Rick Mahorn for the Bad Boys Pistons came on over. Um, Ron Anderson with a small forward who could shoot a little bit. Derek Smith, uh, who I think people sleep on, underrated small forward, who Jordan compared favorably to himself early in their careers until he had some catastrophic knee injuries, unfortunately. But this was one of his final seasons in the league, and he played well as well. They weren't super deep. I pretty much covered them. Um, Scott Brooks played. Scott Brooks was a guy. Um, yes, Coach Scott Brooks was a scrappy guard who could shoot a little bit. Space it, shot 39% from three. Very low volume, but he could shoot it. Um, so, yeah, they went about seven deep, but um, they were a good squad, and a lot of that was on the back of Charles Barkley. Absolutely. Now, the next team uh, is also a Philadelphia team, and that's the 2019 Philadelphia 76ers, a team with Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler, and, uh, and J.J. Redick. Solid squad. I mean, there's not a whole lot for me to say there. Philadelphia always chokes. I'm just kidding. No, they're they're a good team, and you're right. Like this was the Jimmy Butler team. This you had some good shooting. Um, ben Simmons wasn't the Ben Simmons he is now, and Joel Embiid was dominant. Um, at least in the regular season up to this point. So another solid Philadelphia squad. Next up is the 2002 Boston Celtics team, led by a young Paul Pierce. Also had. Uh, Antoine Walker, who I know is uh, one of Corbin's favorites. He is. You got to remember the shimmy. That was good. But 
also, I think they had a season or a game where they hit like this a ridiculous amount of threes. This is a Jim O'Brien coach team. Um, they were definitely trying to up the pace. Um, didn't do a whole lot of that um, as the season went down. But you had Kenny Anderson, um, underrated point guard, I feel like, for his time. Rodney Rogers again. You had a young Joe Johnson. Tony Delk was a serviceable swingman. Uh, like you said, Anton Walker filled it up, and Paul Pierce was right there. Well, Paul Pierce led the way, and Anton Walker was right there. But, again, this team's not going to go very far. Um, but they're a team that's nice to, to bring out. Shout out to the 2002 Celtics. One of the earlier teams that did sort of, uh, you know, go all in on floor spacing and playing some some bigs at the four and the five that could shoot the basketball. Yep, they were um, number one in the league in three-point attempt rate. All right, moving on to the 15 seeds, we've got the 1979 San Antonio Spurs led by George Gervin. Yeah, you know, he was filling it up back then. I think you had, I'm trying to remember if I remember, we're, we're pushing the limits of my NBA history there. Yeah, Louis Dampier came from the ABA. He was a good shooter. Larry Keenan was a solid forward. Billy Paltz, fun name. Mike Mark Overding gobbled up boards. Like this was a team that was built around George Gervin and to a lesser extent Larry Keenan, who funnily enough, in a book I read, thought he was almost as good as George Gervin. Um, hence he was not. Um, but yeah, sol- a solid squad as well. And I love the the black and white, the, the uniforms, they stand the test of time, but their logo back then was slightly different and very cool in my opinion. All right, another team from the 70s, and that is the 1974. Detroit Pistons and a team that uh, kind of had a, uh, a a star guard big combo there. Oh yeah, Dave Bing and the aforementioned Bob Lanier. Um, yeah, they worked out really well together. You had uh, Chris Ford who would end up hitting the NBA's first three pointer. Um, Curtis Rowe, solid player as well. Um, Sue Lance, here I'm on Lakers coverage. So yeah. And then next up, we've got the 2017 Washington Wizards, the uh, the peak of the John Wall Bradley Beal era. Yeah, I feel like this might have been one of their better teams. I feel like I don't know if I like the 18 Wizards roster better. I'm trying to think if I do. Um, but with this one, yeah, Bradley Beal, um, he had a good chemistry of, of Martian Gortat. I mean, not Bradley Beal. John Wall had good chemistry with Martian Gortat. You had Bradley Bill as well. He had come into his own. This team won 49 games. You had, um, trying to think who else, Otto Porter and Mark. Yeah, this is the team I like. Otto Porter, Markeith Morris, serviceable forwards at their respective positions that could also stretch the floor. Kelly Oubre. Remember, Bojan Bogdanovich was on this team. You had Marcus Thornton and Brandon Jennings as well, Jason Smith. This was a, a, a really solid team that went about 10 deep. Um, and they played pretty well together. I think, obviously, the strength of this roster was in their top three between Wall, Beal, and and, and and Porter. But Marquise Morris had another solid season. I think it's his first year over in Washington coming from Phoenix where he had started to come become uh, more of a go-to player for, for a time. Yeah, and this was a period where uh, I think Marquise Morris was the – was considered the better of the of the Morris twins at the time, but then you know Marcus was uh, was superior pretty shortly after that, and uh, has has maintained that uh, uh, that title since. Yeah, Marquise won the battle. I'd say Marcus has won the war. Yeah. So the final fifteen seed is the nineteen seventy six Cleveland Cavaliers, the team, the miracle in Richfield team, where they won a 
really terrific five-game series over an excellent Washington Bullets team led by Elvin Hayes that would go on to win the championship just a few years after this fact. I was going to say, honestly, I think you should elaborate on this Cleveland team being where you are. I uh, know one of these guys, Jim Jones, um, and he was just like a part of the team. He wasn't the main part of the team. Uh, oh, Austin Carr, too. But this was a team of, of, of guys that would make for a very tough NBA grids game. Yeah, of course you know Jim Jones because he later played on the Los Angeles Lakers in the early 80s. Yes, he did. Uh, but uh, yeah, this team was was pretty great. Jones was an excellent, excellent center, and this was prior to a couple of severe injuries he had. Um, and then, you know, when he was on the Lakers, he was still ended up being a pretty good player, but uh, he wasn't quite the same athletically. Uh, you mentioned Austin Carr. He was a guy that was a, a really high draft pick. Of course, most people know him as the the color commentator for the Cavs. But mm-hmm. uh, he was a, a a pretty solid scoring guard, even though he dealt with his own injury issues. Uh, they had some some good play from some guards in Butch Beard and Bingo Smith. And then you also had a couple of uh, you know a couple of um, players on the front court campy russell was a a long athletic wing and then you also had an older nate thurman the hall of famer who you know was not the same player he was definitely past his prime but he kind of when he joined the team he was a perfect fit and his defense his rebounding his passing all of that really helped take the team to the next level yeah nate the great one of the great centers that i think you talked about when you bring up you know Bill Russell and uh, Will Chamberlain and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Nate Thurman played among all of them. Now we're to the uh, the 16 seeds, and uh, first up is the 1999 New York Knicks. One of the, one of, in my mind, the best eighth seed to make it to the finals. Um, you had, of course, the last kind of year, Patrick Ewing, who the last, I'd say, solid. You had a good 2000 season, too, but. Uh, really, this was, and he got injured in the postseason. So really, this was about their guards. They played more through their guards. This was Latrell Sprewell um, would come over late the season before. He really came to his own. Alan Houston as well. Charlie Ward was a solid um, point guard. You had a young Marcus Camby who really stepped up in the absence of Patrick Ewing down the stretch. Larry Johnson, um, before back injury started to injure to curtail his career, um, he was a guy who played solid as well. And off the bench, you know, Chris Childs, Chris Dudley didn't have a great bench. Um, but those starters, yeah, I, I really, really solid team that they try to get in transition. They try to make things happen. You had guys who could make their own buckets in a Latrell Sprewell and Allen Houston. But when they were able to push the pace, like once Ewing got injured, and I, I hate that this goes into the whole, you know, the Ewing theory that was tossed around, but the Knicks remade themselves into a more faster unit. You know, they were playing smaller sometimes. Um, Marcus Camby at the time, I mean, he was never a big, solid center like that, but definitely someone who was quick end-to-end. So they run with him. Latrell Sprewell could run. Charlie Ward could push the pace. You know, Allen Houston spotting up. Larry Johnson could shoot three. Definitely like that team. And they went to a team that was more polished and, frankly, bigger than them in the San Antonio Spurs in the finals. But um, racing up all the way, had they been healthy, I mean, that was a solid New York Knicks iteration. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting when we dive into these uh, these teams and these matchups is like, you know, would Patrick Ewing being healthy actually help this team or did they make the finals in part because he got hurt and they were able to change their style a little bit? I hate to do that to poor Pat, but that is an interesting question to at least ask. 
So next up is the 1984 New York Knicks, a team led by Bernard King. And, of course, we did a whole series on the uh, first round series between the Knicks and Pistons that year. Man, we've done a lot of really fun deep dives. Like, y'all need to go back and listen to this stuff, man. That's all I'm going to say. Whoever's listening to this, like, we got some really good fun dives into this. And we broke them down to detail. But, obviously, you had Bernard King. You had Bill Cartwright. Yeah, Chuck Robinson, Ernie Grunfeld, yep, uh, of Wizards fame, of course. Um, but you also had guys who could shoot the ball a little bit. Uh, Trent Tucker, Roy Sparrow was there too. But this team was built around Bernard King. And we literally dived into how the Knicks opened up shots for Bernard King because he led them in scoring, and it wasn't even really close. He averaged 26 per game. Um, after that, it was Bill Cartwright at 17. Uh, also, let's not forget Ray Williams who was a solid guard in the early 80s, um, who averaged 14 points and six assists. So, so a solid solid team, but built around Bernard King, who was the peak of his powers. Yeah, and a really good defensive group as well. The uh, The next team up is the 1988 Utah Jazz, so a team with a younger John Stockton and a younger Carl Malone, but then also anchored by the elite shot blocker Mark Eaton. Yeah, really solid group right there. You also had guys that were able to play alongside them. Bob Hansen was a solid guard, could shoot a little bit, play um, decent defense. Thurl Bailey was a solid forward, underrated forward throughout the entire 80s. He was able to kind of score in a hurry. He averaged 19 points per game for them. Dow Griffith, Dr. Dunk, you know, Dr. Dunkenstein, who could also shoot three ball. I mean, not super well, but he could shoot it. Um, Kelly Chapuka was on the squad. Ricky Green, who had played a number of years with the Jazz, was slowing down, but he was a quick guard with a penetrate to the lane in his prime. Um, Darren Dawkins also made an appearance on the scene very briefly. So just funny to mention uh, Love Child one more time. Absolutely. And the the last team on the list, Corbin, we're finally there, is the 2015 Portland Trailblazers, a team that uh, had a lot of momentum in the regular season. This was a young Damian Lillard, LaMarcus Aldridge, smack dab in his prime, a uh, team that was uh, surrounded those two guys with the likes of Robin Lopez and Wes Matthews and Nicholas Batum, but then Matthews got hurt towards the end of the regular season, and that uh, that kind of ruined any momentum that uh, the team had going into the playoffs. Yeah, they acquired Aaron Flalo to kind of fill some of that gap. Uh, didn't really happen as much as they'd like that to have happened. Uh, you had Chris Kamen, still Steve Blake as well. Uh, Steve Blake had a couple of good moments in, in, in Portland as well. Some memorable crossovers that I can recall. Um, and then Chris Kamen toward the end of his career. Uh, young CJ McCollum and Myers Leonard as well. But yeah, I agree. This is mostly at the top with Lillard, Aldridge, and Matthews. And once Matthews went down, uh, so did the Blazers. All right. So uh, we're through all of the teams. And uh, again, you know, uh, if, uh, if anybody out there wants to, uh, you know, to complain and say that, oh, there's a certain team that should have made it. I, I'm sure there are plenty of teams I didn't quite consider, but, uh, you know, feel free to uh, to shout us out on Twitter. Uh, you can find Corbin at Corbin NBA, or you can, uh, you can message me at Garrett Bouguet. But uh, we'd love to hear some of the teams that you think uh, qualify for this list that should be on here that we haven't mentioned. But uh, let's just quickly get into uh, some of the rules and how we're going to be breaking down these matchups. We're going we're gonna to try to keep it as short as possible, five minutes of matchup max um, for, for this episode. But, uh, and, you know, as the, 
as this series goes on, once we get to like the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight and that sort of thing, we can dive deeper and, and go into this in, in greater detail, which we, of course, love to do. But uh, just with the large amount of matchups here in the early going, we're going to kind of make it uh, a little bit more brief. Yeah, I mean, but, we're almost an hour in just telling you all the teams. So Exactly. So uh, we're going to... We're going to uh, again five minute limit, but then the the idea with these matchups is it's a best of seven series that we're predicting uh, as to who's going to win it. And for the home court situation, if you're the higher seed, of course, similar to how it's exactly how it is now, you get the first two games at home. Then the lower seed gets games three and four. Then higher seed gets game five, lower seed game six, and then game seven is played on the higher team's home court. But because we're dealing with different eras, we're also not only do you get home court advantage when you're the home team, you also get the games played in your era, in your rule set of that time. So, for instance, in a matchup where you've got a team that's, a, say, a 2022 team playing a team from the 70s, when the games are played on the home court of the 2022 team, there will be a three-point line. But when it's on the team from the 70s, there will not be. So uh, that will be an interesting thing to break down as well as we go through here. And, uh, you know, that could that could affect some of these matchups. But, uh, yeah, Corbin, was there anything in particular that you wanted to uh, to discuss about, you know, what you were thinking in terms of how how those sorts of rules and how we're going to go about this affects things? Or should we just dive right into the matchups? I'm ready to dive right in. I think it'll be interesting to see how it affects certain teams looking at those two, them two Celtics, but I'm ready to go right in without further ado. All right, so we're going to start with the uh, the one seeds versus the 16 seeds. The first matchup we have here, Corbin, is the 1997 Utah Jazz versus the 2015 Portland Trailblazers. Just set the timer for five minutes. What are your thoughts on uh, what are your initial thoughts on this uh, on this matchup? I mean, fully healthy, this is an interesting one for sure. Because, of course, you have, you know, the the Stockton Malone pick and roll, right? Um, and the way that they're able to utilize that. And it wasn't just those two. I mean, that was a large part of their offensive attack. Don't get it twisted. But Jeff Hornacek was a good shooter. You had Brian, Brian, um, Brian Russell. Brian Russell, who was a really solid small forward. And then off the bench, I mean, Shannon Anderson as well. Um, Howard Isley. Like, this was a solid unit. But I don't know that 2015 Blazers squad, especially talking healthy, like John Stockton was a okay defensive guard, but like quicker point guards took his lunch, man. Like Nick Van Exel was killing him in the early 90s. Right now, yeah, the Jazz would win the war even if Van Exel and the Lakers won the battles over the years. But it wasn't just him. Like Isaiah Thomas, you know, gave him issues. And uh, you had all – if you were a quick kind of lightning kind of point guard – you know, that, that it, it, would be, it would be a problem for Stockton. This isn't even young Stockton. This is Stockton in his, in his late 30s. Uh, well, in this case, I guess mid-30s. He's 34 in 97. Um, whereas with Lillard, dude was already coming to his own. Um, I definitely think he'd have the advantage on Stockton. Let's not forget he shot the three ball. Um, not to the levels that he does currently, but made 34% of them taking seven a game. Um, I look at Aldridge and Malone, and I really think that's an interesting matchup. Um, both were solid mid-range jumpers, didn't quite stretch out to three. Both defensively were solid, although I think you definitely give, well, you give the, you, 
both defensively being solid stretch. You give the edge to Malone on that, but Aldridge could get his shots as well. Um, I think it comes to the ancillary players. How do you feel about the Jazz's um, players in terms of Hornacek, Russell, Isley, you know, Anderson versus how you feel about a Wesley Matthews and Nicholas Batum, a Steve Blake, a Aaron Aflalo. I think the battle that's going to be won is between the margins there. Um, but I find myself leaning toward Portland just a little bit. Interesting. So, yeah, I should also mention that when uh, when we finish, we're both going to say who we think would win the matchup. And if we disagree, the higher seed will automatically advance. But, uh, you know, hopefully we'll we'll have some agreements here as well. And I agree in that I think it's an interesting it's it's closer than a one versus 16 would indicate. Right. Because I think the Western Conference at the time for when Utah was uh, was winning that many regular season games, it was a little bit weaker. You know, they were kind of uh, able to take care of business against a weaker conference. The Blazers team was on pace to, I think, win in the high 50s that season prior to Matthews going down. And again, in this matchup, Matthews is healthy. Um, and yeah, I I do kind of like, you know, you brought up the role players. I do kind of like the role players, the Batums, the Matthews, the Robin Lopez's of the Blazers a little bit more than what Utah offers. But uh, there, there is an, and I think both teams star power it kind of aligns, right? You've got the Stockton versus Lillard and you've got Malone versus Aldridge. So, you know, how do you, it sounds like you, you kind of like the Blazers stars better than the jazz stars, but there's also the element of, okay, in the nineties, you know, you it's, it's harder to double team, right? So, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge was was a challenging player to guard one-on-one, and I think a guy even as strong as Karl Malone would have difficulty dealing with him. And the Blazers, I think, had some, had some situations where they could maybe match up and put a guy like Batum or Matthews on Stockton defensively and yeah. maybe switch some of those actions um, and, and make things difficult. You know, the, the Jazz obviously in their heyday had uh, had a lot of success with that pick and roll, but it was all against a lot of conventional defense. Yeah. And, and you're right. The switching too, because I, I think the matchups matter. I think like, I, I don't, Stockton would get to his spots, but I don't like take Stockton any advantage, even defensively where Lillard's not super great. I, I like Lillard's chances against Stockton. Whereas I could see, you know, the Blazers hunting Jeff Hornacek or not even hunting Jeff Hornacek going with the matchup of, of Stockton on, um, Lillard and seeing how that goes. And if the Jazz want to come and, and try to adjust that, I mean, really, they're only real defensive stoppers they had that they could use that had the length and 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 the strength there would be what a Brian Russell or Shannon Anderson. Um, and so if you try to put them on the court, that's one thing. And 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 both could play enough offensively that they weren't liabilities there, but that does open up other areas on the floor, you know. Um, and if you're doing a switch attack, you know, Greg Oster attack, like, I'm sorry, that's not going to be great. And if you try to take out him and put it in Anton Carr, Anton Carr brought you more offensively, but defensively wasn't as good, you know. So now the Jazz defense is compromised. Um, but it would need to be because you want to have a guy who's more mobile. And, and that's not saying that Carr was the most mobile big. He was just more mobile than Ostertag was. So, or Ostertag rather. So I, I think, I, I don't know, like, I want to go Utah, but I mean, also like, I think if we look at who Utah went through that year, like they went through the Clippers and uh, they had, they were challenged by a Rockets team, but the Rockets matchup, you had Charles Barkley battling injury and you had John Stockton lighting up Matt Maloney. Like 
Like that was like that just they didn't have the most challenging path, you know, they're, 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 they're in my mind to the finals. So I look at that. I'm like, OK, were they significantly challenged in their matchups to make them like, OK, how do they adjust? I don't know that I could say the Jazz did, you know, like I said, the Clippers back then. OK, fine. You could make an argument for the Lakers. I'm not going to lie there. But Lakers at that time. A little undisciplined the way they played, even if they had on par talent that was. If you want to argue on par. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm I leaning Portland. I don't know why. All well, right. So um, with that, with that spiel, we're over our time limit. So Corbin, let's, let's pick a winner here. Who do you got in this series? I'm going to go Blazers in six. I I'm surprised you, but I think you convinced me. I, I think we're both picking the 16th seed to upset the one here. <laughs> and Hey, it's been happening in recent NCAA tournaments. So uh, yeah. Let's let's go with it. With the Portland Trail Blazers with a 2-0 vote advance to the round of 32. Next up, the 2009 Cleveland Cavaliers versus the 1988 Utah Jazz. So again, another Stockton Malone team. This team with Mark Eaton at its center. So, uh, what do you think of this matchup? I, I'm taking I'm, another Jazz team is gone in my opinion, and there's less time for me to think about it. I just LeBron. Like, like uh, you could put Malone on him, um, but like the speed aspect of that is something I think will be different, you know. Um, and I like again uh, the 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 nine team is just modern enough that I could see switching being a concept that's used, you know. I can see floor spacing at least on the Cavs team being utilized well, but even if they weren't going to utilize it, this is a Cleveland team. That if I remember correctly, no, that might have been 2010 that they had Shaq. Now that I think about it, um, yeah, they had Shaq in 2010. But this team had LeBron, they had Mo Williams, you had Zdrudis Ogalskis, Anderson Verjal, um, D- Daniel Gibson, Ben Wallace, Wally Zerbiak. So you had a solid squad. I think in my mind, I like I, Mo Williams. Is not Delonte is not West. Don't forget about yeah. him. Oh no, no, sorry, how to forget about Delonte West? Exactly, like those guards are pretty solid. They could both create for themselves and for others decently enough. They were nowhere near the playmakers that LeBron was. But LeBron was literally, I wouldn't say at the peak of his athletic powers. Like, he showed another level in Miami. But he was solid. This was also a really good three-point shooting year for him. And if you're the Jazz, defensively, like, how are we matching up on it? I mean, I think... Well, I think that I'll chime in here and say Mm -hmm. that uh, their, their solution is Mark Eaton standing around the basket. And and that's true, except that if you are able to put in a position where Mark Eaton is compromised, if you, let's say, go at Eaton, you know, with LeBron James there, like, Eaton will definitely get his blocks, but I could see Eaton getting some foul trouble there for sure. I could also see the Cavs isolated again trying to get Eaton in space. Not the most mobile big. His, his his biggest advantage was being able to be, say, rooted in the basket, you know, and and when they're in Utah, I'm sure that will go to their advantage, but when they're in Cleveland, Zdunas Ogowskis was able to space the floor a little bit. He shot 38% from three. Now, mind you, he wasn't taking a lot of three-point shots that year, he was definitely shooting from mid-range and deeper, um, where the Jazz didn't face a whole lot of opponents where their centers are stretching like that. You know what I mean? So Mark Eaton already has to step out a little bit, you know? Um, and if you go smaller, take out Anderson Verjean and, and slide Wally Zerbiak or Joe Smith at the four, you get more floor spacing from that four spot as well. Um, so I, I think that that takes one of your better deterrents in, in Eaton and compromises him just a little bit. Um, although this Jazz team, I do things a little stronger. I like throw Bailey as an option on LeBron just because of additional height at 6'11 and offensively being able to do things. Um, and John Stockton was younger, 
and also quicker back then. So you look at him as making more of an impact, you know, on that end. And, and, and Ricky Green, um, who I said, played a long career in, um, in, in, in Utah. I mean, this was one of his final seasons. His numbers weren't great, but he was a steadying force. So I like Utah. I can make a better case for it, but I don't know. I, 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 I throw it to you. Let me, let me get your thought. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned Zadrunas Ilgauskas, uh, you know, his ability to knock down mid-rangers, shot 44% from mid-range that season. So, you know, a solid mark, but I also think Utah would be fine just making the Cavs rely on that, you know, and, mm. and sort of dropping Mark Eaton in the pick and roll and, uh, you know, trying to take away the basket as much as humanly possible. Um, now, you know, Eaton... Uh, it, it would be a matchup of lumbering centers with Sadrinus Ilkauskas and Mark Eaton. Yep. So the uh, the transition game, I think, would play a factor. But you also got to factor in the the Jazz. This is a younger Stockton. This is a younger Malone. This is the athletic version, the, the most athletic version of them. So I think those two in particular were comfortable, uh, you know, moving up and down the floor. So it's, it's interesting. And I think that Cavs team, one of the issues it had – was that outside of LeBron, they didn't have a lot of great defensive options. So, yeah, you you might be able to throw LeBron on John Stockton, right? But then you set a screen and Stockton can attack as Adrunas Ilgauskas or he can, you know, or you you throw it to Cara Malone and he's attacking somebody that's not the greatest of defenders. So, you know, if you put Anderson Varejao out on the floor, right? Well, Mark Eaton will just guard him. Um, so I, I think this jazz team could give the Cavs group a lot of issues, but yeah, the Cavs do have the best player in the series with, with Oh nine LeBron. Yeah, they do. I, you know what? So, so let's, let's make a decision here. Where are we leaning? I think you've talked to me. I came in thinking, okay, the Cavs for sure with LeBron just, but also like defensively, yeah, this Cavs team wasn't great. And you're right. There's a lot of holes. LeBron can't cover everybody. You do have a much quicker, much more effective John Stockton. Also much quicker, much more effective Carl Malone. That pick and roll is a lot more deadly, especially with the Cleveland team that you're playing your best lineups. You're going to have undersized guys. Delonte West and Mo Williams are going to be part of your closing five, you know. Now, offensively, I think they can cause a lot of damage. But defensively, they're probably giving up just as much. Um, and you're right. Like, I don't think there's a single effective matchup for Malone individually. Um, and with his combination of, of mid-range shooting and, and power on the basket, I don't know his mid-range shooting numbers in 88 though like i don't think they were anywhere what they were a decade later so maybe that actually is actually negated a little bit because once it got into like you know the early like the mid 90s that that jump shot from you know 18 feet was money um but he developed that that wasn't something he already had in his bag i don't know if he had it by 88 so yeah let's just take that away but even then that's still a problem to deal with um and cleveland on their best days weren't really the most like you said uh capable defensive team so i'm gonna say it's a seven game series but I'll probably go with Utah. Going Utah in seven. Okay. I think it's really competitive. I I do think that, you know, um, Anderson Varejao was underutilized, I thought, minutes-wise on that team. I do think that, uh, you know, he's not a perfect matchup for Malone, but that's he's somebody that you could throw on him. Um, the, the Jazz, I don't think, would have an answer for, for LeBron James. I'm going to go Cavs in seven. And since we disagree on this, the the tiebreaker is the higher seed. The 2009 Cavs are the one seed, so they advance. That's fair. 
I, I'm not mad at that at all. You, I like how you talked me into it and then switched up. But <laughs> yes. All right. So next up, we've got the 1996 Seattle Supersonics versus the 1984 New York Knicks. What are your thoughts on this as I uh, turn on the clock? Uh, I like the Knicks defensively, but I just think the South, the uh, the Sixers, Jesus, late. I think that the Sonics just had more weapons. Um, Gary Payton was a menace on both sides of the ball that year. Offensively, was pretty solid. Defensively, was great. The Knicks backcourt was, was okay. Um, they weren't super great, but I think defensively, you know, you could throw a Sean Kemp on a Bernard King. You, Dale Schrempf wasn't a horrible defender. You have additional length there. Let's not forget, I think you had. Um, what is his name? I'm trying to look at this this um, Sonics roster because you had some defensive guys that were pretty decent on that end. In addition to, of course, you know, Kemp. Um, yeah, Vincent Askew. Askew that's what I was thinking. Naming Millen. Um, Sam Perkins, solid big. Uh, yeah, I just think that you – I think that it's – it's. I'm, you had bodies you could throw in front of Bernard King. And also, Bernard King was only de- – throwing. he was only really – Punishing you 15 feet in it. Now, he was very good there. Very good there. But this is really built around him offensively um, with whatever Bill Cartwright could provide as well offensively. And then this Knicks team was built around defense. I like the defense. I just think the, the Sonics have too many weapons. So um, I would take Sonics in five. Interesting. So, you know, those mentioned or those guys you mentioned as options for Bernard King. I don't like any of them. I mean, we watched that. Yeah, we we broke down that 84 series between uh, the, the Knicks and the Pistons. Bernard King was a monster, and I fully believe he would average 35-plus in a series against the 1996 Seattle Sonics. Now, you make a good point, though, that the Sonics have, um, you know, a lot of weapons offensively. They were a balanced offensive team. They were good on both ends of the floor. So, Theoretically, I think they could. The Sonics could do enough to, you know, maybe slow down Bill Cartwright and maybe slow down some of the, you know, the secondary options on New York and do well enough offensively against again a, a really good Knicks defense as well to to get by. But I'm thinking this is a little closer, and I think it's in large part just because, like, is it crazy to say that in a series with Gary Payton and Sean Kemp that? Bernard King is the best guy in the series. I think 84 Bernard King was just incredible. I agree. I just think, I mean, the thing is like Bill Cartwright, it was not, I mean, you, like I even showed the numbers, like it was first option was Bernard King. Second option, probably Bernard King. Then we go to Bill Cartwright. Like there's a big drop off between your best player and Bill Cartwright. And if you have a guy like a 6'10 Sean Kemp, a 6'10 Deadless Shrimp, that's some additional size. Like, Bernard King was good getting to his spots. I wouldn't call him, like, athletically explosive back. He was really good at getting to his spots. But now you have to show over a little, like, additional length. Um, and uh, I would say Sean Kemp was no slouch back then. This was prime Sean Kemp. If I make him the primary matchup, I'm okay with that. Like, I I like that. Um, Della Shrimp was a little older. But I think, again, you're giving a guy where you're making him work for his spots, and you realize that it's kind of really just him. Like, I don't mind putting Irvin Johnson on Bill Carver. I don't think Bill Carver is going to go off. He hadn't shown that in that series that we watched. Like, he was a solid player, but that's it. And your, your all, ancillary offensive threats for New York after that were not super great. They were a defensive-minded first team, and I get that. But at the same time, you're in, in this is when they play Seattle. Dallas Shrimp is stretching out to three. Shot, you know, 38% career three-point shooter. Sam Perkins, I have his time back then shooting the ball. 
Gary Payton and Sean, I'm not Sean Kemp, sorry, Sam Perkins, yeah. Gary Payton and Sean Kemp, that pick and roll attack, that's a lot to handle. Percy Hawkins, devastating shooter from mid-range and from three. Like, I'm not saying that the Sonics are like this offensive like powerhouse, but compared to what New York was facing, kind of. Like, like I'm just the athleticism and what they bring to the table there. Frank Rakowski could shoot the three. Like your bench, Sonics bench was 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 there was less punch there. But when you're talking about what you have bringing to the table up front, like Gary Payton is shutting down. I mean, you're not really getting Ray Williams was a decent Knicks offensive guard, but it wasn't even like the Knicks like strength was in their backcourt. So you can then throw Gary Payton as a double. You could have Gary Payton pester Bernard King and then switch and bring in Kemp as a bigger body. And Kemp was mobile and strong. So I, I just think you have more weapons that aren't going to be taxed by the Knicks offense that you could bring to bear against really the Knicks' only main offensive weapon. I mean, Bernard King, I mean, not Bernard King, Bill Cartwright is probably going to get his points, but like, what is that, 18, 20? Like, you know, Irvin Johnson was no slouch down there. He wasn't. You know, uh, Sam Perkins was a very good defensive center down there. Like, yes, he wasn't able to do it against Prime Shaq, but no one's getting Bill Cartwright mixed up with Prime Shaq. Yeah, you convinced me I was initially going to pick Sonics and seven. I'll go Sonics and six now, in large part just out of my respect for Bernard King. But uh, we both end up going 1996 Sonics as the winner in that matchup. All right, moving on to the final one versus 16, and I – Frankly, I, I don't know if this needs much of a discussion. The 2018 Houston Rockets versus the 1999 New York Knicks. I've got the Rockets in a sweep. I'm going to give a, uh, too much respect to Latrell Sprewell and Allen Houston. I'm going to give them one game. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm gonna say uh, Rockets in five. And honestly, I really should lean towards sweep, but I really should. Rockets sweep, whatever. Yeah, you can make an argument like just across the board every position the Rockets have a superior player. Well, uh, except Latrell Spruill's position. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I yeah, I just, yeah, they're, they're outgunned from the three-point line. They're outgunned in isolation. There's there's a lot that the Rockets have at their disposal. Um, and, it, and, and if, I mean, do you think Clint Capella, you know, um, Tyson Chandler, like they didn't play a guy like Patrick Ewing. This old school post-up center. But then and in New York, that might work. But also, like, the rules weren't that much different that I think that Houston would have a significant issue with that. Um, and if you're going to that, then what are you not going to? So I'm I'm going to have to agree. As much as I, I want to give the Knicks a game, also a name New Yorker, but, yeah, we're going to go we're gonna go with the with, uh, clean sweep. All right, so 2018 Rockets advance. Let's go to the two versus the 15 matchups. The first one here. The 1993 Phoenix Suns versus the 1976 Cleveland Cavaliers. What are your thoughts on on this one, Corbin? Of course, again, we we broke down all the teams. So we've got Charles Barkley, MVP season on one end. We've got a Cavs team with some good bigs in Jim Jones and Nate Thurmond. Um, Yeah, what are are your thoughts on this one? I mean, Jim Jones and Nate Thurmond are nice. Like, solid players. Like you mentioned, Campy Russell and other guys, Austin Carr. No, not Austin Carr. No, I was right. Austin Carr. I'm getting mixed up. And who am I? I Antoine Carr with the Jazz. Yeah. Yeah, and Austin. It's Austin who? It's Austin Carr for the Oh, okay. They both are. Okay, good. Listen, it's late on this end. It's late on your end. I'm I'm getting blurred out together. Um, I just don't. 
I'm going with Phoenix in, in five. Um, Barkley was a beast. And yes, you have additional size, um, but also like you have a lot of weapons that I just think all at once Cleveland is, is outmatched to prepare for. Kevin Johnson's ability to hit the mid-range jump, jumper and get into the lane. Charles Barkley being able to score at literally all three levels, distribute the ball. Richard Dumas had a, had a solid season there, um, and he was able to do kind of the same thing, a slasher, shoot the mid-range J, Cedric Zabalos as well. Um, and then we're getting to guys like Dan Marley, who's like spacing you out from very deep. Um, it was effective against a really good Chicago Bulls team. You know, with, Keep in uh, mind, though, in this series, in the games in Cleveland, even though Phoenix is the higher seed here, so they get game four of the seven games, including game seven, but – in the games in Cleveland, no three-point line. So maybe Dan Marley not quite as uh, effective, given that he can't stretch the defense out to three. Well, I mean, I still, I mean, it won't. The threes won't count as like they won't count as threes. But the fact he can make shots from that distance, I mean, unless you're going to let a, a, one of the best shooters in the '90s, well, you could say one of the best shooters around in general, just bomb away, which doesn't seem like an effective strategy at all for winning games. Um, like, yeah, the threes don't count as two, but you still have to respect him as a shooter. You know what I mean? Like Dan Marley could shoot the basketball. And he had more to his bag than just a shoot. It wasn't just like a designated shooter. He could do more. Um, Danny Ainge, same thing. Like, Danny Ainge played into a three-point line. So, you know, again, threes count as twos. He was knocking down jumpers when they, you know, when the three wasn't as um, prioritized. So I just, I, I like, no, I can't even say I like Cleveland in this. I don't. Um, I respect them. I would give them possibly a win. Um, but this is a Phoenix Suns team that not only was good offensively, but was also pretty solid defensively too. Top 10 defensive rating, number one offensive rating. Um, and the Cleveland team was was good. But I mean they they didn't they they call them a miracle of what? The miracle of miracle of Richfield because they played yeah. in the Richfield Coliseum. Uh, yeah. And, uh, they were a bit of the underdogs because the Cavs just came into the NBA in 1970. So it was a new uh, a pretty young franchise. Uh-huh. But uh it'd be a miracle if they won uh, two games know, against Phoenix. There was there was 18 teams in the league at that time. The Cavs had the third highest offensive rating at 18 and the fourth highest defensive rating and the second overall in net rating in that 1975-76 season. So the team was uh, was pretty darn good. And then Jim Jones got hurt in the second round and they ended up losing to the eventual champion Boston Celtics. But if Jim Jones stays healthy... Who knows? I mean, that that Cavs team was was really legit. And I think both of these teams, you brought up a lot of those role players for Phoenix. Both of these teams had pretty good depth and had pretty good talent at, you know, both in the backcourt and the frontcourt. I, I, I see what you mean. Um, I just feel like the 1976 NBA season was was different um, than the quality of competition in 1993. Um, and you're right, relative to who they played, that's great. But you had uh, Denver Nuggets team that we didn't mention win 50 games, right? You had a Houston Rockets team, 49. Of course, you had an L.A. team that, aside from, I think it was Kareem um, and Lucius Allen, was kind of punchless, and they won. Like, it, the quality of competition was, was different. Um, Philadelphia was solid. Boston won a championship, and they won 44 games. New York was right there. Like, it, it, to compare it, I get it. And, yeah, like, Cleveland was solid for its time, and that's great. Um, but like, I can't put them as like, oh, one of the best teams of their era and then make it seem like that, like the mid seventies is a reason the NBA was going where it was going, um, before Larry Bird and Magic Johnson came in. Like we're getting the slugfest and the ugliness here of, 
you know, the 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 rubber matches between the Supersonics and the Wizards or the Supersonics and the Bullets and the Blazers had a champ. Like it was it was solid. I just I can't compare those two in that same vein. And you're right, like, but for its time, like Cleveland was solid. Like I, I would definitely like give it its props there. But I, I just feel like it's a totally different level of competition in terms of like well, just in terms of the level that you're bringing. Like, yes, both teams are deep, but like, I feel Cleveland is deep for its time, and I feel like Phoenix is deep. Yeah, um, that's fair. I, I do think it's interesting, the idea of, uh, you know, putting Nate Thurman on Charles Barkley. You know, again, Nate Thurman at this time was more the just the defensive stopper for the Cavs. Not saying he would older, shut down well. Barkley, but, um, you know, I, I do think they had dude. some guys, they had some length, some athleticism to throw at Barkley. But, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I'm ultimately going to go with the as we're as the clock's winding down here i'm gonna go with the uh i'm gonna go with the suns i'm gonna pick the suns in seven games though i think it would be a competitive series but with the suns having home court they take it in seven wow i think your cleveland bias is showing my friend i had Suns in five and <laughs> honestly it took even to think about that i give it to you it's, it's your hometown i understand it but no i um i i, I again this is an older nate thurman um there's a jim Jones who's sophomore's time, but Charles Barkley in 93 was a beast in terms of his quickness, his outside shooting. I mean, he was giving David Robinson problems, like in David Robinson his prime problems, and, and Nate Thurman was at the end of his career. Um, so I'm not comparing, no, I, I don't I don't see it. Like, yeah, he has length, but I just feel like he'd be smoked. Um, but that that but that's just my opinion on that, but no, I think we both agree that the Suns move on regardless. Yeah, and again, that Cavs team uh, you know, no superstar level players, but similar to like the 2000 Blazers, some of some of those teams, just quality talent up and down the board. So we've picked this, the 93 Suns to advance. All right, next up, we've got the 2006 Dallas Mavericks versus the 2017 Washington Wizards. How do you feel about this one? Of course, the Mavs ended up losing in the NBA Finals in brutal fashion to uh, Dwayne Wade and the Miami Heat. And the, the Wizards lost in seven games to the Isaiah Thomas-led Boston Celtics that season. This is an interesting one for me. I on my on my on its head, I want to lean toward the Wizards because I really that I is know. a surprise and to me because I I feel the exact opposite. I feel very confident in the Mavs in this matchup. Well, initially, I wanted to lean toward the Wizards. I like. John Wall, again, and, and he was just an athletic freak in his prime. And also in 2017, I think the playmaking had also come to a point where, you know, finding the role with Martian Gortat and knowing when to pick his spots, not the best outside shooter, but could definitely, you know, shoot from the mid-range and get to the basket almost at will, right? And this was Bradley Beal, who, yeah, not the Bradley Beal of 2019, 2020, but like a really good shooting guard. Um, but then I started looking at the rest of the team. I like Otto Porter. I like Markeith Morris. I like Kelly Oubre. But this 2006 Mavericks team was a team that was under Avery Johnson. Um, that was first. They were they were in the middle of the pack in defensive rating. They were number one in offensive rating. I look at Dirk Nowitzki. I go, how do you guard him? Um, this was when he was at the peak of his powers, like literally in his prime. Um, and I don't see the match there. Jason Terry was a problem. Josh Howard could score and transition and create his own offense. You still had uh, post prime Jerry Stackhouse. Uh, you just have a lot of weapons on a Dallas team that somehow, well, thanks to Avery Johnson's coaching, was also a very solid defensive team. So I still think the Wizards get their points. Um, 
but I, I do think Dallas gets the series. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Dirk is the best player. Um, and then, you know, you talk, you talked about how Dallas is just so good offensively. The, the 2017 Wizards, not the greatest of defensive teams. I just don't really see how they're going to slow down Dallas enough. You know, and, and again, the Mavs had so many different ways to beat you, right? Like you could isolate Dirk. You could have Dirk as the screener and, and run action for a guy like Jason Terry, right, who was so good dribbling to his right with that right-hand pull-up. Um, mm-hmm. You've also got, uh, you know, Josh Howard who can isolate and, and do a lot of interesting things as a slasher and in transition. And you brought up Jerry Stackhouse who, who could also, uh, you know, could still probably put up, uh, you know, five to ten points a game if he played the league now. Like, that guy could just score. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I I just don't think the Wizards have enough offensive uh, firepower to keep up, even though, yeah, John Wall and Bradley Beal were, were excellent players. Yeah, I actually like the Wizards' offensive firepower. It's just defensively I don't think they have a chance, really. I think the Wizards, you know, at, at a certain point, I mean, Jason Terry and Josh Howard are – not like individually you're going to realize also that isolations are a lot more of a thing if Dwayne Wake gets to the free throw line at abandoned by hurling himself at the rim I like John Wall's chance of doing the exact same thing um so offensively I think they will generate points Bradley Bill could also do not the same type of impersonation of that but he could also get to the rim even though he's more comfortable shooting the ball and this isolation game was solid as well so I can see the Wizards definitely hunting matchups um attacking Dirk Nowitzki um maybe going a route that the 2007 Warriors went you know a year later where they went smaller, stretched the floor out, spaced them a little bit, bombed away from three. That that could happen. But defensively, um, yeah, the Wizards are just inferior at pretty much every category. Uh, and I think ultimately that's the difference. All right, so I'm picking Mavs in a sweep. What are you going with? I'm going to go Mavs in five. All right, so the 2006 Mavs advance. So next up. We've got the 2009 Orlando Magic versus the 1974 Detroit Pistons. How do you feel about about this one? I like the Magic. I think just saying it as succinctly, mind you, Bob Lanier, beast, right? Uh, I think that he could definitely give Dwight Howard some issues. Um, And Dwight Howard was not like, I mean, he was a dominant physical center, but he wasn't. He never treasure chest of low post moves. I mean, he never did throughout his career, but he definitely didn't during that time. But this Orlando Magic team, I think, has additional size, has the ability to space the floor, and has individual offensive creation from a number of different levels. Um, and I mean, Cleveland, I mean, Detroit, I, I don't know. They're, 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 I can't speak a whole lot of their guys outside of, you know, Lanier, Dave Bing, like those type of guys. Um, well, I guess really just those two. Um, trying to think of another one I remember from that team. Oh, Chris Ford. Like these, they, they just no. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I know I, I don't know a lot about these players. I know enough of these players. I know enough of the Magic uh, that I just don't see how. Like, yeah, let's say Lanier um, plays Dwight Howard to a standstill, and Lanier was a very talented offensive center as well. Um, like up to about I'd say. 13, 14 feet, right? Definitely a good low post center. But, like, it was him and, and Bing. Um, and what you got from Chris Ford, and that's great. But this Magic team, again, even if we take away the three-point shooting and the fact they bombed it away, it's the space they provided on the floor and the fact that Hugh Turkoglu could shoot three, create for others, and get his own offense. 16 points per game. Rashard Lewis, shoot three, 
create for others, not so much really, and get us on offense, 70 points per game. Jameer Nelson, same thing. Ray for Alston, same thing. Then you go to guys who couldn't but brought valuable utility skills like a Courtney Lee, Mikel Petrus, uh, Tony Batie, J.J. Redick, Anthony Johnson. I, I don't think it's an overwhelming victory, but like I would go Magic in five. Yeah, I I largely agree. I, I think that Pistons group was uh, yeah was heavily reliant on that top two, whereas the Magic, you know, of course Dwight Howard was the star, but they had a lot more options. You know, Rashard Lewis can can score. Hito Turkaloo can do his own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Jameer Nelson is healthy in this matchup, even though he was hurt for that team for most of the playoffs in two thousand nine. Yeah, um, yeah. Rafer Alston can run a pick and roll and, and make some plays. Yeah. Um, what are you? What are your thoughts though on the whole idea of okay, in the games in Detroit, Orlando doesn't have a three point line. How do you think that would affect the proceedings? So I'm weird about that because on the one hand, I think it would affect a little bit because those threes don't count, like there's long twos. But these, it wasn't. I don't think this Magic team was like. The 20, I'm trying to think of like maybe the, the 2002 Celtics. There you go. Where they took a lot of threes, but their really only good three-point shooters were like Anton Walker, if you want to call him a good three-point shooter, and Paul Pierce. Like these guys weren't taking shots just to take them. They were taking them because they could make them at a high volume and also open up the floor for Howard. But these guys were good shooters. Hugh Turkle was a good shooter, period. Rashard Lee was a good shooter, period. Jameer Nelson, same thing. You know, Courtney Lee, same thing. Even Ray for Austin, like I think, even if you make those long twos, you still gotta respect them because they can shoot the ball, and it's not just a ploy to open up the floor for Howard. Um, and also, this is Hugh Turkle and Rashad Lewis, still someone in their prime. They're both 29. They both could get to the basket. They both could post up. They were multifaceted offensive weapons in ways that they weren't later in their careers. So I still think you have to respect them, um, whether or not those threes count as twos, because they could still do more. It was built around Howard, and the Magic took advantage of that to space the floor out and and, and play to that strength for the rules to their time. But it wasn't like they were doing it to hide the shortcomings of their players. It was like, hey, you guys can fit these roles. Let's maximize that. Yeah, and and you make a good point that even if they're not counting for three, like these guys are good shooters, and, you know, if you can get an open, you know, uh, you watch a game from the 70s and teams are willing to give – good shooters like open 15 footers, you know, exactly. like if, if Richard Lewis is getting nothing but wide open, like 15 to 18 footers, like he's going to hit a decent percentage of those. Yes, he is. So, he uh, might be the best player in the series. Yeah. So, and I do think Lemire might play Howard to a standstill. So even if that's the case, I like Lewis. I like Turkaloo. I like Nelson. Yeah. Well, and, and frankly, I think the likes of, um, you know, Dave Bing and Lanier, they would all, if the Pistons were to win this series, they'd have to outplay their counterparts. And I just don't really see that happening. So I'm going Orlando in five in that matchup. How about you? Orlando uh, clean sweep. Okay. All right. So the 2009 Magic Advance, the last two versus 15 series we have to discuss is the 2011 Chicago Bulls versus the 1979 San Antonio Spurs. What are your thoughts here? Not a whole lot to say. Um, I'm taking the Bulls. I think that defensively, the Bulls, well, the Bulls played defense. Um, so that was the thing. And also, they had some decent offensive weapons. Derrick Rose, ability to get to the basket, you know, that was his prime offensive year. But Luol Deng was solid. You had a Carlos Boozer in the low post. You know, you had, um, i trying to think, you didn't have, um, did you have Rip Hamilton back then? 
think that's I don't believe did. so, no. No, that was 2012. That was 2012. 2011, um, your, your shooters would have been like a Rasul Butler. So, honestly, they might be. I might not like them on their shooting overall, like their outside shooting. But then again, they're playing a team that didn't shoot threes at all anyway. So, all things being equal, like, it's not equal. I take the Bulls advantage. Yeah, your best three-point shooter was Blue All Day, who took four a game, 34%. Oh, my fault. I'm forgetting uh, future uh, – we'll talk about him in another episode, but Atlanta Hawk Kyle Korver, uh, who was yeah. a designated shooter, shot 41% from three on less threes than – Luol Deng, which is hilarious, but also just given the minutes and everything. Um, Keith Bogans also shot 38% from three. So you had some shooting. You didn't have the best, the most shooting on the roster for sure. Most of your Bulls players were more interior oriented, but defensively they were a monster. Joe Kim Noah, you know, anchored the back line. Kurt Thomas, even at 38, was still very solid. Ronnie Brewer was able to get fits alongside Luol Deng on the perimeter. Derrick Rose was able to do his thing offensively. You got key reserves like Taj Gibson and Kyle Korver. Um, yeah, I, I I like this. I think that even in a run-and-gun type of game that the Spurs would like to do, take advantage of the fact they played no defense and didn't have a whole lot of outside shooting, um, the Bulls have just enough outside shooting to make them pay. And although I think the Bulls would like a more slow-it-down, grind-out game, um, you do have a guy in Derrick Rose who can run the full with the best of them and a guy who's a perfectly good swingman, Luol Deng. So um, I'm going with the Bulls. Not a whole lot of thought there. George Gervin, I mean, that's nice. I like him. Um, but I, I just don't see him being – yeah – I'm going with the Bulls. Interesting. I, I, looking at this, I was I'm considering the upset. Um, how? Okay, I'm very interested how you would do that. So for one, like George Gervin, phenomenal, phenomenal player. You you can't just like throw him to the side and be like, oh, you know, yeah, they got George Gervin. So so what? Like, I mean, George Gervin could who who well how what was George Gervin's main offensive mode of attack? Like I mean again it, he's playing in trends. I'm not saying he's not one of the greats, right? But the guy was a shooter from like 15 feet and in, like historically not a good shooter, right? Uh, a variety of inventive finishes around the rim, finger rolls. Uh, he was known for that sort of game. But you have a guy in Luol Deng who is a pretty solid defensive for himself. I'm not saying he's gonna shut down George Gervin, but this isn't even like prime Bernard King. Like, you're not, I don't think you're swinging a series of George Gervin against this Bulls team. You didn't swing a series of George Gervin back then with George Gervin. (laughs) Not, not prime Bernard King, you say, even though George Gervin, let me, let me throw out the stats for the season. George Gervin, 29.6 points per game on 54% from the field, Corbin. The guy was not only, you know, he got to the free throw line seven times a game, shot 80, around 83% from the free throw line. The guy was an elite, elite scorer. And, you know, pretty similar numbers in the postseason for Gervin that year as well. 28.6 points per game on 53.6% shooting from the field. Uh, Got to the free throw line 7.4 times in the postseason per game. So... Uh, you know, you talk about the inventive finishes. He's known for the finger roll or whatever. But, you know, he also, I think, actually had a pretty good jump shot from 15 feet and in. And he was tall and long and really athletic. He could just turn around and shoot over the top. And, yes, Luol Dang is a pretty good defender. But I don't think he's stopping George Gervin. I don't Luol think Dang. there's anybody that's stopping George Gervin. I mean... I think the the bullets found a way to stop George Griffin um, back then. 
and they had less defensive so, They had so, uh, hold defenders, on, hold on. But... You, you sent me, uh, you know, I asked Corbin to send me some some videos he could find to some of these older teams that maybe we weren't as familiar with. He sent me a video, and it was of Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals where the, the Spurs ended up losing to the Bullets. Gervin put up 40 in that game, Corbin. What are you talking about? <laughs> he did. Um, I just I, I, I okay. The Bullets, who in my mind were one of the weakest teams to win a championship, um, won the game, right? And, and Gervin, Gervin put up numbers. I'm not saying Gervin couldn't put up numbers. I'm saying that Bob Bob Dandridge was a decent defender, and so to a lesser extent was Greg Ballard. I like Lou Dang to both of them. I'm, I should have sent you the 2011 Lou Dang film. Um, maybe I should have done that. <laughs> maybe I should have done that because I'm not saying that George Gervin wouldn't get his points. I'm just saying that it wouldn't matter. Like, in the team concept, like, I didn't mean to dismiss George Gervin. I guess I dismissed George Gervin the same way I dismissed Bernard King. Like, both of those guys are very solid, but their teams were not that. Now, you could say that George Gervin had more help with Larry Keenan, um, in, 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 in specifically in, in this round as a constant guy. And then Louis Dampier, you had other guys as well. You know, James Silas was, was a solid uh, player as well. So you had other guys if you want to go there. But if you look at that Chicago Bulls team, the Chicago Bulls team that gave a uh, superior Miami Heat team issues that season until the playoffs. I'm not saying, oh, they're going to struggle to the 79 Spurs. I'm sorry. I'm not. I mean, again, you're talking about a team that played a superior Miami Heat team that with a LeBron. And uh, if you took that Heat team and took it in the Spurs, it's no issue, right? This this Bulls team was the second best team in this. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm expected to think they're going to struggle against Gervin and, and, and Keenan. I'm sorry, I don't. I think that I will give the Spurs a game. I will do that. I don't want to diminish the, 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 the and I'm not trying to diminish the greatness of George Gervin, but the strength of the team they're playing more or less negates that, in my opinion. Like, yes, Gervin, I, let's say Gervin averages 33 points a game, which I don't see happening, but let's say he does. Okay, Bulls in five? You really think the Spurs are going to win two games against that Chicago Bulls team that made his name on defense with better offensive talent 30 plus years later like like again the rules if anything the lack of a three-point shot works to the bulls advantage so better i i disagree with the better offensive talent comment uh in 1979 versus 2011 with the the rise of the third ranked offense out of 22 teams in 1978-79 Again, and, led and by one of the, the best offensive players in NBA history, Corbin. Um, this, I mean, to I me, it's not that. close. The Spurs are the vastly superior offensive team to the Bulls. Now, the big difference is the Bulls are the vastly superior defensive team. But on the offensive I, end, I, 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 don't I, think this, I don't think this is particularly close. Um, and how? Just off of the back of George Gervin alone? Like I mean, that's uh, a big part of it, but they also, had, they also had some pretty good scoring with Larry Keenan. Um, Billy Pultz could score. Um, a little they had bit. A, uh, we, watched, we watched Billy Pultz, sir. Well, I'm, I'm going to call you out, Gary. We watched Billy Pultz. He could score back then. Okay? Let's be real. Like, let's be real now. Larry Keenan could score, not to the level of George Gervin. I, I just want you to make the same case when we talk 2001-76ers. If we're going to do this. And one man is going to stand up against this team and say, I mean, you shall not pass. <laughs> if we're talking about like scoring, Bill, you're, 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 you're shitting on Billy Paltz, but he's going up against Joakim Noah, who's not the greatest scorer. I mean, if we're comparing offenses here, 
Um, Carlos Boozer could score. Luol Deng could score. You're not stopping Derrick Rose at all. Derrick Rose could probably – you're not stopping Derrick Rose at all. Like, that's for one. Luol Deng was a solid score. And Carlos Boozer, that was probably the value he brought. was Because defensively, he fit in the team concept. But we know that he was there for his low post play and his ability to shoot from mid-range. Average 17 points a game. Luol Deng, 17 points a game. Derrick Rose, 25 points per game. And then, of course, George Gervin, 28 points per game. Like, that's not a huge difference. You know what I mean? And then, and then off the bench, I mean, again, I, you're right. I say the Spurs I, I say the Spurs offense because I wasn't blown away by the Bulls' offense. But the Spurs' offense is built off of George Gervin, Larry Keenan, and garbage points, occasional mid-range jumpers. Gene Silas averaged 19 points in the playoffs, 19 points per game as their third leading scorer. So that slots in right in right over um Dang and in between right that's right in between Dang and Boozer, right behind Rose. So it's Gervin Rose, Spurs two players, Bulls two players, Bulls superior defense, but the Spurs the Spurs push it to seven. Like like I just the math ain't mathing, friend. Like I'm I, I'm not trying to disrespect San Antonio. I watched the same film. I like George. George Gervin should be the type of player I like. But against a team like this that gave, uh, again, LeBron James, vastly superior offensive player. Vastly let me, superior. Let me, also mention, let me also mention this. You know, the Bulls' defense with Tom Thibodeau, were, they were really focused, and we've gone way over five minutes on this matchup. But uh, the, <laughs> the, the Bulls' defense with, with Tom Thibodeau was really – predominantly about overloading the strong side of the floor, right? You can't do that in the 70s in San Antonio. So the games in San Antonio, a lot of the key principles that the Bulls' defense ran just are not allowed. So a lot of what George Gervin can do one-on-one, you're kind of forced to guard him one-on-one in a lot of respects in those games in San Antonio. I would say I would disagree with that. I would say you you are more you are more forced to do that, but you can honestly let those Spurs guys bomb away from outside because they couldn't. Like I mean, bomb away from the mid. Like yes, let George Gervin get the points. You're not. I mean, Larry Keenan. You can. Larry Keenan wasn't the offensive guy that George Gervin was. Neither was James Silas. If you really believe that George Gervin is going to you know go off in isolations, you know, at the elbow, and you can't shrink the floor and make him shoot contested jump shots, he's going to find his way to the rim. I mean. He, he the pace was as much a factor as the ability to the room as anything else. Like it just was. I think we like we saw that. Uh, it, it like we saw that later in his career. I mean, even when he went to unless he just got cooked at thirty one and went to Chicago. Like he wasn't that level of like he was a very talented offensive player and a system tailored to that. And you have a defensive team that is able to say, hey, you let's say you shoot well from fifteen feet, but no further than that. That's for sure. Right, and you're able to get to the basket, and we have to play you one on one, but we're going to pack it and just force you to see bodies and shoot over the top of folks. I, I think but you're again, okay. This, with is, that. this is what I'm saying, Corbin. In the '70s, with the uh, with the defensive rules, you can't pack it in and show him bodies as much. It's you you can't just leave your man on defense like well, you no, can no, in I'm 2011. No, and that's true. You're not keeping. You're not playing a guy like a non-entity, but you can shift and and, and do different. I mean, one, if you're putting Luol Deng on an island with George Gervin, I'm okay with that. I'm sorry, George Gervin wasn't playing lockdown perimeter defenders back then. He just wasn't. That just wasn't a thing in in, in the set. That just wasn't. Bobby Jones is one that comes to mind. 
I would even put Bob Dandridge in the same in the same category. You weren't getting the later perimeter guys you were getting later. And now now I'm not, see, like I'm like I'm like I'm shitting on George Griffin. I'm not. I'm just saying level defender. No, you thing. absolutely are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I, I I'm not gonna blow him up like he's some he was a good player. He was a good player. Like he wasn't he was a good player. He was. He was a good player for his time. Uh he's he, he's on the NBA 75 list. Like that's great. But last I checked, so is uh Anthony Davis. Like, like, like these guys are good. Um, but if I'm putting him in, I'm saying, oh, one, like he's gonna change the series. No, he might change a game or two. But against the 2011 Bulls team, and, and when this goes, this is not happening. I'm sorry. I, I'm just stunned that of all people, you are making the argument that I would normally make. Like, I don't see how. I don't see it. Maybe I'm, I don't see it. We need to watch some more Bulls games. I, 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 anyways, I I think it's interesting. I just think that. I watched plenty of Bulls games and watched their offense just completely self-destruct against Miami in the Eastern Conference Finals. And in large part because of the things you mentioned, they lack outside shooting. Derrick Rose Mm -hmm. was heavily focused on getting to the rim. The Spurs are a big basketball team. They're not the greatest defensive team in the world. They're not a good defense. Okay, sorry, continue. They were, the seventh out of, they were seventh in defensive rating out of 22. In 1979, Okay, again, you have to contextualize the, the, the times. Like, they weren't terrible for the times they played in. You weren't playing a murderous row of offensive back then. You just weren't. And the mid to late 70s was kind of the decline of the NBA basketball game. Like, you had some really solid teams, but you didn't have a Larry Bird Celtics, uh, Matt Johnson Lakers, uh, Isaiah Thomas Pistons. You, you were in the midst of the plotting era. Like, that's historically known. Like, you had a Spurs team that, like, like electric up and down and played just enough defense to be possible back then. And that's great. But to compare the Chicago Bulls' struggles against the elite Miami Heat defense with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade leading that and Chris Bosh in the back line, to a Spurs team that defensively was just there compared to the Bulls. I'm not saying the Bulls offense is great, but we also have to count the fact that like the Spurs defense, I, I don't know. I, I think this is one of those interesting philosophical ones where I, I wish, I wish, I don't know. I don't know, Garrett. I, this is interesting. I, I still, I mean, I'm, I'm not swayed in my opinion, but like I'm, I'm in thinking the way you're saying it, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if it's I think mostly it's a combination of like I'm higher on George Gervin, maybe lower on Derek Rose than you are. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, I think we're going to disagree on this one. So, yeah, what's your pick for this matchup? Yeah, I got Bulls in five. I'm I'm sorry. I, 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 I yeah, I got Bulls in five. Um, shout out to George Gervin. Though. One of the greats. Gary loves him. <laughs> I'm picking Spurs in six, but because the Bulls are the higher seed. Corbin's pick advances, so uh, we should put that to Twitter. So I'm honestly, like, I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, I don't know. I wish, yeah. That's recency bias, Corbin. You'll, you'll win that on Twitter. Recency bias, Re- but uh, we'll, we'll pull up some. Okay, we're gonna walk. Anyway, let's continue. You're right. We already gone long. <laughs> All right. So uh, now we're to the three versus the fourteen. We've got the. I think this one can be quick. The 2002 Sacramento Kings versus the 2002 Boston Celtics. I've got this Kings in a sweep. I mean, I thought the last one could be quick. No, I'm playing. I have the Kings in a sweep as well. Um, uh, although honestly, if we're going to talk about the greatness of of 
George Gervin, let's talk about the greatness of Anton Walker, right? Um, <laughs> I'm playing. I'm playing. Um, that's not even. That's not even a good faith argument. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, we'll, we'll have plenty of time to talk about the 2002 Kings in future episodes when in their matchups. But uh, let's move to the 1994 New York Knicks versus the 2019 Philadelphia 76ers. This is a juicy one. I, I think this is interesting. It is. It is. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't know. I like... I have New York in this. But I could be swayed. I think that if I'm going pretty prime Patrick Ewing, Joel Embiid, of course you do have... Ben Simmons and Jimmy Butler as well. But I like the Knicks being able to put out, you know, Anthony Mason, John Starks, um, having a Charles Oakley in the mix. I'm really high on um, Derek Harper, our point guard, his ability to dictate pace, and he was a good shooter in general. Um, I I like I like the Knicks in this. I think it'd be a tough series. I think it'd go seven games. Um, I think it'd be one of those ugly kind of series. I wonder how the Knicks would 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 attack or or not attack Ben Simmons, but like make the use of his limitations offensively. I could see the 76 want to push the pace to fit Ben Simmons' needs. Um, but whether that works with Joel Embiid, who doesn't run like that, right? Or Jimmy Butler, who prefers to have the ball in his hands a little bit and the back and forth there. Um, the off ball action of JJ Redick compared to the more post centric play of the New York Knicks. But John Starks had enough off the bounce juice. You know, you could say the same thing. Derek Harper was older, but was still effective. Um, and off the bench, you still had, you know, Greg Anthony and others as well. So it's interesting. I, I went with the Knicks in seven, but like I said, I could be swayed. This was, this was actually one that took a little bit of thought. Yeah. Again, I think these teams are really similar, which is why it's so interesting. Both of these teams are great defensively. They've got great defensive talent and just collectively, they're, they're strong defenses. They both have star centers with Patrick Ewing versus Joella Bede, which is fascinating. Um, I think the Knicks, you know, the J.J. Redick thing of it all is what's fascinating to me because on one hand, the Knicks don't have a defender that's like a weak link like J.J. Redick, right? So there's no one that's as easy to attack as him. But also I think, you know, J.J. Redick with his dribble handoff game on the offensive end with Joel Embiid would give the Knicks some problems. And yes, John Starks can create his own shot as well. But, um, you know, I kind of like the creation and the offensive, uh, you know, having the ball in the hands of a Butler, of a J.J. Redick a little bit more than what you mentioned with with uh, Harper and and Starks. But it's, it's really close. And yeah, it would be a, uh, neither team has great shooting, of course, like, you know, the, the Knicks are playing, Anthony Mason at the three um, and Ben Simmons is playing on the perimeter at times or, you know, kind of as the four. And, um, you know, he obviously has limited shooting. So both of the teams could clog the paint. Uh, Yeah. I I think it's, it's a real, it would be a really tough grinded out sort of series that, yeah, I think at minimum goes six or seven. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. I, like I said, I have Knicks in seven, but Honestly, you're right. And because in my mind, also, like, Philadelphia, like, 
how are you making the most? And and they were pretty inventive, I feel like, with Ben Simmons back then. But ideally, you want the ball in J.J. Reddick's, not J.J. Reddick's hands. Um, you want the ball in Jimmy Butler's hands, in J.J. Reddick's. But then what does that do with Ben Simmons, right? Um, how does that, like, utilize him? Defensively, you have a way, but offensively, he's best there. Um, I mean, he's a, de- a screener as well, but then I like the Knicks' defense on that. So it's definitely it's definitely interesting. I think it'll be a, a seven-game series either way. I just happen to swing to the Knicks right now, but, I mean, I could wake up and be like, ah, oh, 76ers. Um, actually, now nah, I think about it. Mm. I don't know, because the Knicks were an offensively limited team even for their time, right? Yeah. Um, like, that. that's just, that's just kind of what it was. Um, and the 76ers, I mean, you can get decent explosions from – any of their guys. They weren't the best shooting team, but I like Jimmy Butler in isolation. Um, even if I like the Knicks defenders on him, same with JJ Reddick. Even that's the thing. Like any of the 76 guys could go off, even though I like the Knicks options on any one of them. I even like Ewing on an beat. I, I think that would be interesting. Um yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna let you make the call on that, sir. I I I'm I picking Sixers and six, but uh, your decision will help determine who advances. If you pick the Knicks, the Knicks advance. If you pick the Sixers, the Sixers advance. Oh boy, um, that's rough. I said Knicks and seven originally. I could be swayed. Um, no, I'm gonna go with the Sixers. I. Yeah, because Stocks could be as cold as he was hot. And we saw that even in the postseason. So it's not like you can consi- – like I could consistently say, okay, Jimmy Butler will be able to create offense. John Starks is if the shots are going down, right? Um, and Derek Harper, where he a couple years younger, I'd be like, oh, I still like them better. But Harper was a little older. It worked well with that Knicks team and the pace they played. But, again, against the 76 team, yeah, I'm going to go – I don't feel great about it, but I'm going to go 76ers. I'm going to go seven. All right, so 2019 Sixers advance. Next up, 2003 Mavs versus 1996ers. And Corbin, let's just try to uh, do like a one to two minute version for these last couple. Um, Mm -hmm. So 2003 Mavs versus the 96ers. So it's Dirk versus Chuck. Who you you got? 2003 Mavs, I think their offense was just a little more firepowered. I like Chuck, I do. And I think that he would... I think against the person with the personnel that the Mavs deploy that Charles could go off, but ultimately uh, the Mavs have more weapons and they play the pace and it was space the floor in a way that the 76 aren't able to match in my mind. Yep. I mean, you've got Steve Nash, Michael Finley. Um, I agree. Just too much firepower for the Mavs. So 2003 Mavs advance. All right. Last one we'll do here. The 2021 Phoenix Suns versus the 1962 Los Angeles Lakers. Do we have to? Why do we have to do that to my Lakers? I like Elgin Baylor. I like Jerry West. I give them enough respect that they may be able to steal a game. Okay, no. I want them to. Um, But I just, I'm going with the Suns. Like, even if I go Jerry West is a a good, and he was a good defensive guard. And is able to stay in front of one of Booker or Paul that does leave the other one open, right? Um, Paul on the pick and roll. The the Lakers were outmatched at the center position. That was their biggest weakness in their prime, much less against a team like Phoenix, right? Where DeAndre Ayton, who's like not a Wilt Chamberlain, but definitely better than a Jimmy Krebs, you know. Um, I think Elgin Baylor would get his points. Um, he'd have to work a little harder for him, but he definitely will. I also think Jerry West can as well, um, especially in those games in LA. Um, but if anything, I wish they had a three-point shot for Wes. 
Um, I think that Chris Paul's going to live in the mid-range anyway. <laughs> and Devin Booker prefers it as well. So I just I, – I, 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 I can see the sun sweeping. I want to say Lakers – I want to say Suns in five, but I can see the sun sweeping and not be surprised. Yeah, I'll go Suns in five just because there's a chance West or Baylor goes off. But I think, you know, star power-wise, the, the Lakers duo, I think, can hold up just fine. But I think depth of talent, you know, this, this Suns team was deep and they had a lot of a lot of good players on the wing as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm picking, I'm picking Suns in five. So the 2021 Suns advance. So that'll do it for this episode we're going to do the rest of the first round in part two of the round of 64 but uh, we're looking forward to uh, getting as much of this done as we can this off season and if need be we'll uh, we'll finish it off later in the year but uh, Corbin can't thank you enough for coming on this was a blast it's always a pleasure talking about with you man I appreciate it thanks all again thanks for listening to another episode of Duncan Dynasty Corbin Ford and Gary Bouguet here with you. And uh, just wanted to, to quickly say before we wrap up, uh, please subscribe, rate, and review Duncan Dynasty. We're on, uh, we're on iTunes. We're on Spotify, wherever you get your, uh, your podcast. That is uh, much appreciated. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Garrett Bouguet. Corbin, why don't you tell the people what you got going on? Oh, man, you can find me on Twitter at Corbin NBA. Uh, definitely make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. I mean, following me is just an afterthought here. But if you want some more NBA content from yours truly, uh, check out Round Ball Ramble. Um, it is my podcast. You can also find uh, the description uh, on my Twitter handle, on my on, once you click on my Twitter handle. Uh, definitely check that out. And, uh, yeah, a bunch of other um, assorted pods. I love talking hoops just like my friend Gary does. So you know where to find me there. That's the main part to catch my work. Yeah, can't recommend Round Ball Ramble enough. Corbin does goes, does great stuff there, and I've appeared on it numerous times and uh, <laughs> hopefully will be uh, continuing to appear on it in the future. Again, we appreciate you all for listening and, of course, enjoy the next week in the NBA calendar.